Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. And of course, welcome to part 12 of A Feast for Crows. The final part, the final episode. We are finishing the book today. Cue the celebration music. Woohoo, we are there. Well done everybody for reaching this plateau, this end of an amazing book. We're going to have a lot to talk about today. I am Sir Buckley and I am coming to you from a a fairly misty England. We've had the thunderstorms, but it's a calm of late, perhaps fitting for some of these chapters. I've personally taken on a different kind of energy. Normally, you know I'm all about the sun, the solar. It's disappeared the last couple of days for these storms, so instead I've had to take it from the trees. I went to visit my grandfather, the best man ever created, and he happens to live in the beautiful Epping Forest over in Essex, or over that way anyway. So I've taken it from the trees today, and almost weirwood like you could say. Shame that's not really going to come up today. Perhaps I'm just getting ready for dance. But for today, it's all about the ending of Feast. What a book. And I'm going to tell you straight off here, before we even get going, you might have to prepare yourselves. This might be a first time thing for Scraps and Scrolls. I might have to split this episode into two parts. That's how big these chapters are. Of course, it's the ending of a book that they're going to be huge. Do you remember what Storm was like, those last few chapters? Well, it's not so very different today. We have some monumental chapters to get through, some huge moments specifically, some real mic drop moments I know are very, very famous in the fandom, and for good reason, I'm looking forward to get to them. And that's why this might have to be a two-part episode. There are such things as maximum file size limits to upload to Podbean and to uh, uh, Patreon. I don't actually think they're the same limit, which is a bit complicated, but point being, we might have to split this because you might have seen on Twitter that my little document I prepare for these is 48 pages long this time. It's about 28,000 words. So that's, well, averaged out 7,000 chapters, not that exact. Some are larger than others, but it's going to take a while. And that's about all the talk about this book as a whole and finishing it and what we've got coming next and all that kind of stuff. Now, to be honest, I'm going to try and keep that on the minimum because, like I say, we've got enough to talk about in the chapters and I don't want to go... I don't want to completely destroy your ears, you've got enough to be listening to in this fandom. So we might be saving that for, I might do an extra wrap up episode next week perhaps, we'll see. We'll get some thoughts in there, not to worry. And in any case, there's going to be more chance to talk about it at some point. So with that idea in mind, I don't want to delay too long here, we need to get going, we really do. But some important news to get through first. First of all, the thank yous, because there's been a lot of people supporting through this whole book, these whole 12 episodes, and obviously before the first three books, but I want to make some mentions here. I would like to thank Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse. Thank you to yourselves and of course everyone else over on the Patreon and all listeners in general as well for being there for this book and for getting involved and talking and asking questions and sending stuff up and downloading and sharing and just being cool cool people we appreciate it so much you lovely green folk there is also some news to cover because it is quite a busy week here on the Isle of Faces not only do we have this monster episode to get through but this Saturday coming this Saturday very very happy to announce I will be returning to the airwaves of Radio Westeros over on their live stream so you already know how excited and honoured I am to have been invited once to talk about the prologue last time They've either asked me back somehow, I don't know how, but they have. And we'll be talking about Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, that's right. So if you think the prologue I was interested in, 
even better and obviously very fitting for what we're going to be talking about today so there's going to be a little bit of crossover there a lot of uh, similar themes obviously I'm really very excited to just talk to Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy in general but especially about Lady Stoneheart so that'll be this Saturday on the 22nd Radio Westeros live stream I believe it is uh, 8pm my time UK time wherever you are work out what that difference is very very excited I'm really looking forward to that I'm sure you'll be there whether I was there or not if you do want to come along and say hello, oh, I'd love that. And that's not all. You'd think that'd be enough, wouldn't you? But on the following day, Sunday, it's the wrap-up live stream for Visa Crows on History of Westeros. And luckily, I'm going to be there again with Aziz and Shay and everyone else. So there'll be a lot of the general wrap-up talk there. I might be able to save it for there. You know the score. You've done this for Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings and Storm of Swords already. Favourite chapters, favourite moments. We go through the different POVs. I'm not sure how Aziz is going to structure it this time because we've got way more POVs than normal, but I look forward to finding out and I'm sure you'll be there as well. So, you can see what I mean. Very, very busy week for myself and for the other faces. Lots to get to, lots of exciting things. Beyond honoured to be asked on both of these podcasts. It's wonderful uh, makes me feel very proud, if I'm honest, because these are the giants here, aren't they? History of Westeros, Radio Westeros, it does not get much bigger than that. So to be able to go on and chat this stuff with such fine people is really a blessing. Let's get down to it, shall we? Like I say, I can't spend too long going on the overall, which I would like to, trust me. Some of that will be talked about at the weekend. Some of it I will save maybe for another time. But let's do a little bit today because here we are. It seems quick as you like. It's the end of A Feast of Crows. Now, I do want to talk about the whole book, but let's focus on the ending. Even with it being quicker than either of the three books previous or the next one coming, it has been quite the journey. And right back at the beginning, you'll remember, I said that Feast was the best of the five in terms of improving on every subsequent reread. I hope you've joined me in that opinion since we started because I'm doubling down on it. I reread it. Uh, last year I've obviously reread it now and it's even better I think next time I reread it it's going to be even better I'm just going to appreciate it more and more for some people like Lady Gwyn you might remember from the Storm of Swords wrap up it is their favourite book of the series and I get what your people are talking about absolutely sure I still think Storm remains my personal favourite but there is just something about Feast I think I do really love it and love it in a kind of different way it's just such an outlier in its structure and its focus and its content it almost can't be included in the favourite debate because it seems like it's a category all on its own. There's Game of Thrones, there's Clash, Storm and Dance, and then there's Feast. It's just different. I don't know if you feel the same. Anyway, we can't delve too deep into the overall, as I said, because it, you know what I'm like, it's a rabbit hole. Do you remember this first episode of Feast of Crows? I said, okay, we've only got three chapters, got the prologue and uh, Aaron and Arya. It won't be too long. And then it ended up being a massive episode because I wanted to go through everyone's POVs and their arcs. So I'm going to resist for now. If you see me, or rather hear me, delving too far, journey back into the past, throw something at my house so I'll get on with it, please. Now having said that, <laughs> don't, don't throw anything just yet because it's a very small caveat. I don't think I've made any secret on my opinion of the anti-war message of this book, on the focus on the small folk, on the broken men, on the amazing twin structures of the Ironborn and Dornish storylines, of the female focus, you know I talked about that a lot, or the world already reacting to dragons yet to appear in this land. There's so much to talk about, there's so many highlights, cough Brian, seven cough cough, but for now I will try and remain focused on this final collection of chapters and let's quickly tell you what they are. I think you already know, I would suspect, but I will update you anyway. 
Today, we are talking through Brienne 8. You see why I talk about Radio Westeros? Because that is the return to Lady Stoneheart. Is Brienne meeting with her former friend, with the Brotherhood Without Banners. And it said Manners then. <laughs> Brotherhood Without Banners. And, well, the end of Brienne's arc. So I think you know what that includes. We move on to Cersei 10. Now, I would say we've got a little bit of um, a 50-50 in today's chapters. We've got kind of half where I would say the whole chapter is amazing and some of the best chapters. And then the other two, they might not be the best chapters, not that they're bad, don't get me wrong, they're just not on the same level, but there is very big moments, especially at the end. Cersei 10 is one of the latter. The chapter itself, I don't think it can compare to Brienne 8, but we know what happens at the end of Cersei. We know this is her downfall. So still a very big moment, very important. Jamie 7, up next, is a fantastic chapter. We're still at River Run. It's the victory for Jamie, and just kind of the wrap-up of the Riverlands. And I say wrap-up, but it's really not. It's the setup of so much stuff that we've really got no idea about for wins, which we'll talk about in a second. And again, a very, very big moment at the end, as you'd expect. And then finally, we shall finish the whole book. Not with an epilogue this time, thank you, Storm, but with Sam 5. The return to Old Town, where we began this book in the first place. Goodbye to the crew of the Cinnamon Wind, unfortunately. Hello, Marwin. Goodbye, Marwin. And, well, hello. Oh, this guy, you look familiar. Have I seen you before? Mm-hmm. We'll talk to that. So, yeah, I think you know what I mean. Big, big chapters. And wouldn't you know it, George has sequenced these chapters to perfectly fit in with this book. It gives us a run of his three main characters to finish, doesn't he? No offence, Sam, but Brienne and Cersei and Jamie, they are the big three. And Brienne and Cersei, well, they've been the revelations of the book, haven't they? They're complete surprises. We didn't know about them coming in. And they've completely dominated the narrative in utterly different ways. Brienne, down on the ground floor, doing good. Cersei, up high, corrupting and ruining everything. And in the middle, where he likes to be, is Jaime, with his simply amazing arc of, like we've said in the past, not quite redemption, but definitely some kind of improvement. His journey has been amazing to witness and does serve as the outline here. It's a real continuation of Storm does such strong, strong arc and I adore it. For Brienne and Cersei, though their paths are different, the end results are largely the same. Negative, deep falls that end in very, very dark places. Jamie on the other hand not only scores a victory with Riverrun, but makes one of the biggest decisions of his life when he doubles down on everything that he has learnt and felt in this book and turns his back on Cersei for good. And the people cheered, certainly I did. As for Sam, Sam is an outlier of his own in this whole book. He's kind of an on-the-edge narrator who's appeared regularly and has been largely focused on aspects not even included in this book in John and the Wall and Daenerys and her dragons. Everyone else is kind of, you know, obviously in Westeros and focused on those things. Now, okay, Aya, she's the other one, not in Westeros, the only other part of the plot he's actually touched, so that makes sense. But he's really the only one to have not kind of been where everyone else is in this whole time. And I really doubt anyone would have picked him for the last chapter of the book based on those who have come before him, looking back from the first three books. His book-long journey finally comes to an end as we make those incredibly, incredibly strong connections back to the prologue, as we are suddenly reminded that after all this stuff about ruling the capital and discovering leadership, protecting children, making kings, making queens, changing your name, there is something magical going on, some mystery that is clearly important and that we still have no idea of. And oh yes, do not forget, they told us of this right at the beginning. There's dragons afoot. Let us head on and finish this absolutely brilliant, singular book. I know, okay. I will just devolve into a love letter to Feast if I'm not careful. So let's keep it going. 
Let's begin with Xi, who we've just witnessed have the greatest victory of the Feast for Crows, I'd say. And now instead we open on how she gets the exact opposite of what she deserves. And of course talking about Brienne. Let's go with Brienne 8. Brienne 7 is clearly not the act you want to be following. The brilliance of that chapter is so bright it already seems like whatever happens after is going to seem a step lower into the gloom. But Brienne 8 is something else. It does manage to not fall into that trap. 7 was the perfectly constructed mix of exciting bravery and then terrible drudging horribleness with Biter's attack at the end. Though Brienne succeeded in her mission and saved the children and the others with some help, it's the drudging horribleness that actually wins out for her personally in this chapter. That is very much the point of the choice that she made. It was the right thing to do no matter the personal consequences, but it's still tough for us to read. Brienne might have been new to us in this book, but it's impossible not to have fallen in love with her, especially given her attitudes at the end of the book. Now we have to watch our true knight not only deal with devastating injuries that might have scarred her look-wise, sure, but also might have affected her fighting ability for the rest of her life, and I think we know which one's more important to her. Even that's not enough. Much more painfully, we have to see her treated as a traitor, an oath-breaker, someone worthy of contempt when we love her so much. And finally, we have to watch her death. Technically, nearly. We'll get to that. The other key part of this chapter is those who order that death. The Brotherhood Without Banners. The real deal, the big guns. For the entirety of this book, and before, we've had to hear about this version of the Brotherhood and where they are, what they're up to, who's in them now, and really we've just been guessing. We haven't actually seen them properly. We've had glimpses, but we haven't seen them properly since Sandor Kagan took Eye away like halfway through Storm. It was a long time ago now. They've constantly been on the horizon throughout all of Feast, always in the shadows, and now we actually find them. It's our first true look at the Stoneheart Brotherhood, which is very different to the version we saw before. We finally see some key members who we've not seen in an age. We get an idea of the direction they're going in, the fact that not everyone is 100% in on that direction. And much better, much more important, and especially based on George's recent comments, I would have said this anyway, but based on recently, a very important character going forward for the overall plot of the series i would say lady stoneheart returns we get to see her the quick monstrous glimpse we got at the end of storm is now shown to us in full or as full as we get so far anyway and it's not what we want to see it's not righteous catelyn it's true vengeful stoneheart to brienne's sorrow the connection between those two the fact we've come to where we are now it all makes for a very high emotion and just as emotional is the fact this is our final goodbye to brienne as well so far I think we can all agree she's probably coming back and wins, but still. While this is obviously all goodbyes today for our chapters in terms of this book, that's not true for every character overall. Cersei and Jamie, we at least have a little bit more of in Dance. Not a lot, but a little bit. For Sam and Brienne, this is the complete end of the line. We will not see them again in the published material. We aren't even lucky enough to have gifted Winds of Winter preview chapters for either of those two, so we've really got no idea. We're really heading into the unknown here. Technically, you could say Brienne appears in Dance off-page at the end of Jamie's lone chapter, but even that isn't really confirmed for us. That's not really a comfort. Brienne, more so than Sam, invites some very solid guesses on her immediate future. There's a lot of theories out there. But past that, most of us are completely clueless as to what lies in the further future. So with that, we really have to put focus on the past and present that has been given to us in Feast. As we argued back in the beginning, I would say that Brienne is the character of A Feast for Crows. 
Cersei grabs the headlines and the chapter championship. You can definitely persuade me that Jamie is the main man, but I would still say Brienne is the emotional core. She resonates most closely with what this book is about. She's the one who has given us our best view of what we're supposed to be seeing here. The effects of war and the lives of the lesser known. Add in such key moments like the broken man's speech or the quiet aisle, the brilliance of Brienne Seven that I'm always banging on about, and definitely not discounting her two superbly exciting jewels. It's very hard to call her anything but the heart of this book. And she's helped out in that regard by only appearing in Feast as a POV. Jamie shares his story with Storm and Dance. Cersei also gets to be in Dance, whereas Brienne is only here in this book so far. Hence, I think she is the character we associate with a single book more than anyone else save the great Eddard Stark. Almost every other big POV is spread out. I, I know, you know, Tyrion is huge in Clash, sure, but he's got a big, big storyline in Storm as well, and Game, and, and Dance. So I, you can see my point. You can spread everyone else out, but Ned is obviously only in Game of Thrones, so we associate that book with him a lot. Brienne, so far, is only in Feast, so she's kind of the flag bearer for this book. I've made the Brienne-Ned comparison before, and I'm going to stick with it. They're both out to protect, both out to keep their oaths, do the right thing, and unfortunately witness the consequences of war. Different consequences, but consequences all the same. They are both just good, even if they are coming up from vastly different angles, like I say. We're all surely just as in love with Brienne, and are really going to miss her in the long gap before seeing her again. I've enjoyed talking about her, it's going to be tough to get through dance without her. Judging by the way things are setting up, it probably isn't going to be a jolly read of her during wins either. I don't think she's going to be having a lot of success, early on at least. So this might actually even be a peak in this book, which is weird to say, but we still have this chapter to go through before we get there. So let's quickly think back on the woman with a new sword and a new quest that we met what seems like an age ago, asking after that maid of three and ten. Since then, she's come across numerous questionable characters, the evilness of Randall Tarly, twice, fuck off Tarly, the blindness of war, the leavings of the broken men, the worst leavings of the bloody mummers, but also across gems like Podrick, the Quiet Isle, Willow and Gendry and Meribold himself. Her arc has been about this noble choice of doing the right thing and this chapter is very much examining what it looks like after your golden noble moment, when reality comes rushing back in. Like so much of Brienne's book, we begin on a journey. This time, she's not even moving on her own power. She's being carried towards the meeting with Stoneheart and the main block of Brotherhood power, but she's obviously got no idea in her current state. She thinks this is all a dream, an evil, foul dream. She's half right there. The way that Brienne knows it's not a dream? The sheer amounts of pain. And that sets the tone for this whole chapter. It's mostly pain and misery. Almost like George is sneaking a little preview of what we can expect a lot more of in Winds of Winter. Brienne is denied clarity at the beginning. Very few facts are available to her or us, so we've really got nothing to stand on at the start. The world is wet, she feels heavy and useless. Another good metaphor for the overall tone of the chapter. But what's this? She's she's bound up, she's tied to a horse, she can't move. Brienne doesn't know why, and neither does the first-time reader. Things ended well in Brienne 7, didn't they? She didn't die, Biter assumedly did. Okay, she had awful injuries, but she seemed like she was saved. It seemed like it anyway. So what's happened since? Did they actually lose? Was Biter killed by one of his own and then Brienne captured? Remember, we don't know it was Gendry who saved her at this point, even though it's a solid bet because his sword was mentioned previously, although later it's actually mentioned he used a spear, so Brienne was kind of a unreliable narrator there at the end but as it stands we've got no reason to think this is the brotherhood that came and took her 
And even if they had arrived, why would they tie up Brienne? She's a good guy, though. All good guys, right? Hmm. Well, we'll come to examine that in a bit. Brienne is awake enough to be aware that she has a fever. She's burning up. And then the description gets even worse. Here's your first quote of the day. There were things broken inside of her. Her face felt swollen. Her cheek was sticky with blood. And every jounce and bounce sent a stab of agony through her arm. Now, they're obviously talking about the physical broken inside her. But I think we can also apply that to spirit in the in the beginning here and that just that first part alone is a heartbreaker our poor brienne we expected as much we saw what biter did but still this mighty warrior this good person is seriously injured and she's been left to experience all the pain without any apparent care so far she's just being left on this horse probably doubling the pain she's not being looked after properly at least we are given some good news that podrick has apparently survived as she hears him calling out after her or is Brienne right? Is she having a fever dream and just imagining his voice? We know the truth as rereaders, and you have to feel for how Pod must have felt having to watch Brienne go through this without being able to help. He's probably tied up himself. Dreams are what Brienne turns to now, or nightmares more accurately, as she zooms back to Harrenhal in her mind, an important place for her in terms of the relationship with Jamie, but also because she came very close to dying there, very, very close. And not just dying in battle, or by murder, or by even by sanction, but as entertainment. She was just used as a plaything to be laughed at and mocked and proven wrong about her warrior's soul. Now we saw all that through Jamie's eyes and though we did discuss Brienne plenty at the time, we obviously could have never truly empathised with how she felt in that moment. It's a pretty big moment. In the dream, it's Biter who comes in this pit, not a bear. I don't think it's surprising that he comes naked and fondling his member, it says. Recall how much Brienne has come into contact with this very threat at multiple points in her life, as well as the very general, ever-constant danger it is for all women. She most likely was thinking of exactly that when she challenged Rorge and the others at the inn, making it all more impressive that she did it anyway. She begs for Oathkeeper in this dream, partly because she wasn't allowed a real sword at Harrenhal, partly because she treasures it so much personally, partly because she's just had a near-death experience and was nearly eaten. You tend to want to keep your weapons around you after that. But she sees only ghosts watching back in the stream Harrenhal. Those she's killed in Shagwell on his bunch, and those she believes she failed in Nimble Dick, Renly, and Catelyn Stark. That one's rather timely, isn't it? Even the general number of the corpses in the trees dog her nightmares, and we can see how much guilt and responsibility Brienne is always carrying with her. I think we know that anyway, but still. All of it adds up, all of it weighs down. As we said back at the Whispers, there's no clean winning in this game. Even with her victories throughout, they stay with you. At the end of the dream, Biter attacks and Brienne is made to relive her traumatic ordeal. This is tough. Finally, she screams for Jamie. When Jamie had his own fever dreams, or weirwood dreams, they centred on Brienne and now she does the same. And that gives away a lot of about her true feelings for him. This is not just a memory of who saved her at Harrenhal, this is a hope for the future. Brienne half returns to the living as she hears voices and we can finally ascertain a few things. A girl answers her heartbreaking cries for a maester. Brienne thinks it's Sansa. Most first-time readers would probably think it's Willow, and soon enough we'll find out it's actually Willow's older sister Jane, which makes for an amazing connection, because Brienne previously thought of Willow as like Aya, now she's unknowingly comparing the older sister to Sansa, so it's great instincts by Brienne. There are other voices though, ones that are harsh and laughing, backing up this worry we have of who has got Brienne here. Worse, they've mistaken her for a Lannister, so we're getting really worried now. She's thinking of Septon Maribold, but the words are wrong, and we get another big clue. The night is dark and full of terrors, and so are dreams. So now we can start puzzling out a bit. Who would be saying such a phrase in the Riverlands? 
Gendry was just professing his love for the Red God in Brienne's last chapter, so it could be him. But if not, then it's likely we're with members of the Brotherhood, because who would be talking about him otherwise? And maybe, just maybe, it's one specific member we've met before. We'll save that for later. Brienne remains in the half-world as they continue, half in our dreams, half in reality, but she can't really, she just can't see where she is. And I admit, I picture something like the opening scene of Majora's Mask, where Link is riding through that eerie forest. That seems to be what they're in here, this dark wood, this misty wood, it's all very surreal. And George uses the surroundings to set the mood, as he so often does. Dank, gloomy, silent, all words that are used here. There's no brightness about any aspect of this. Brienne is aware of that, but is still thinking her companions are actually those guilts of the past. She can now see that she's surrounded by riders, but she can't actually see who they are. She's thinking it's Renly and Dick Crabb again, now complete with their respective injuries. Even Vargo Hote is there now. No matter how evil or how much good she was doing by killing these people, the weight of killing itself stays with Brienne's soul. It will never leave her. In my eyes, that only makes her more and more good. It's a very Ned thing, I think. She watches Renly die again, perhaps the worst experience of her life prior to this, and definitely the one she feels worst about. It's almost as if Brienne, after doing such a good and selfless deed, is being made to pay penance for some reason. That's what it looks like. Like she's being made to suffer these memories as a punishment when she deserves praise. That's the overall unfairness of this chapter that we struggle with. Brienne doesn't ask for praise when they stop, and she regains a few more of her wits instead. Water is all she actually wants. Instead, she gets milk of the poppy, or something like it. She doesn't bother mourning her own body, and actually asks what happened to Biter, as she truly remembers the attack, and understandably hates the idea that he might come back for her with those teeth of his if he still lives. Luckily, we find the truth. Gendry shoved a spear through Biter's head, not a sword after all. We covered this part a little more last week, so I won't repeat it here, but hooray for Gendry, I think that settles it. So Brienne falls back on her old line, when there's nothing else left, she doesn't know where she is, what she's doing, let's just go back to basics. A highborn maid of three and ten. She has blue eyes and auburn hair. Even now, in this condition, she has the mission in mind, even if she has failed yet again, unfortunately. Still, her wits are really improving now to not only realise it's not Willow, but also guess that it's her sister Jane, the innkeeper. She's smart enough to be thinking that on that level now. She begs for release, but is told no by none other than Gendry, who definitely does not seem all that appreciative of what she did there. So incorrect for me last week, I thought... That was the last we ever saw of Gendry, but he kind of pops up very, very briefly in this chapter. We get this very tiny little look. Gendry says no release until Brienne stands trial in front of Milady, which Brienne figures out means Stoneheart. So her mind really is becoming a lot clearer here. It's another clear sign of she's obviously coming out of the fever dreams. And more key pieces of info are being shared now. First off, it sure seems like those fields and rows of men we saw at the beginning of Brienne's last chapter were all results of some new Stoneheart decrees. So we know both the aggressiveness and scale have massively increased for the Brotherhood, as we said before. But we also find that Gendry is pretty on board with the Stoneheart thing. There was a good hint with his growing closeness to Valor back at the inn, but this specific link to Stoneheart is something we've been wondering about since the end of Storm. And we're obviously going to have many more confirmations coming in this chapter of how many do go along with her and exactly what she's been up to. I will forever love Brienne for the mere fact she includes Dog when asking about what happened to her friends. Unfortunately, before she can find out, she passes out again for another dream, and this one is much the same. She's at the Whispers, another sight of her perceived guilt. She doesn't have her sword again either, and that breaks her apart as much as anything else. My sword, please, I have to find my sword. A sword is everything to a knight, even if we know Brienne herself is worth ten Oathkeepers at least, if not more, a hundred. 
Unfortunately, during all of this, there are other voices, ones we know to be real even if Brienne doesn't. They are hearing her cry out for their sword and for Jamie, and even though she doesn't understand just yet, they are mocking her for it. In a moment, these cries, this vulnerability that should be something intensely private and personal, is going to be used against her by the prosecution, and it really does leave a bitter taste. It's, it's just not fair, it's cruel, and Brienne deserves better. But the fever keeps coming as she's rowed across a stretch of water, a foggy river just to really keep up this mystical atmosphere that George is building, which makes sense considering he's about to unveil his largest magical slash otherworldly commodity he has saved for the dragons, and they're completely different in presentation. This is the eerie, creepy side, so George is laying the whole red carpet out for her. Now what waterway is this that they are crossing? I've never actually considered it where this could be before. And maybe it's something so simple as it's too small to be on the map or for us to take any interest in. Or, judging on proximity to the inn, it might be one of the three forks or the trident itself. We know we're about to end up in the Hollow Hill, or we assume, where we've uh, visited with Aya before, but there's still no specifics on that location either. Seeing as they head towards Jamie at Pennytree, somewhere in the Blackwood Vale region during Dance, you'd think it would be the trident or the red fork. Maybe I'm completely off that, I don't know. Regardless, on this little boat trip, Brienne dreams about people calling her beauty, calling her freak, and again, her vulnerability is ripped wide open as she begs for them to stop. Again, it's that, it's that penance theme. Why is she being made to go through all this? It's cruel, George, you're very cruel. It's as if every scar, every wound on Brienne's soul has been opened for people to look and scoff at, as if it isn't bad enough she has to experience all of this physical pain on her own. She's not even awake enough to be aware let alone defend herself against it it's just utter cruelty and such a hurtful experience for a character we love so much when she next comes to brienne still pitifully too weak to even drink by her own power asks for gendry but he's gone back to the inn so like i say very brief appearance in this chapter which is probably why i forgot it instead we re-meet lem even if that means nothing to brienne now lem he was never exactly a happy-go-lucky character was he though we didn't mind him that much back in storm but this is something else now. He's he's changed. The harshness in his words is just a bit sharper. The eagerness to kill Brienne or just let her choke to death. He now wears the helm of Sandork again. Perhaps a sign of his apparent corruption or he's, he's just kind of getting worse. But I also think another clear sign is his yellow cloak being so sodden and filthy. There's a fairly clear metaphor there for his cloak and his soul. But if we want straight up signs, well then what of this? Bread and salt, Brienne gasped. The inn. Septon Mobile fed the children. We broke bread with your sister. Guest right don't mean so much as it used to, said the girl. Not since my lady come back from the wedding. Some of them swinging down by the river figured they was guests too. We figured different, said the hound. They wanted beds. We gave them trees. Whoa, this deserves major scrutiny. Be prepared for me to fall down a rabbit hole here. This is pretty big and it's pretty troubling. The Brotherhood, apparently under the orders of Lady Stoneheart, Catelyn Stark herself, have not only brushed off the ideals of Guestright, but also seem to be using them as a trap to ensnare their enemies and then kill them without chance of defence or escape. I'm honestly not sure where to start with this, because it is a huge issue. Tumble down this warren with me. So let's kick off with just not doing Guestright anymore, like it's optional. We as rereaders and the characters in-universe have made a huge think about the breaking of guest right at the Wed Reading, how it was base evil on every level of morality, and was basically like the worst thing ever, really. That's how many people have looked at it, both in the books and without. We all saw it really as 
cheating. It's essentially cheating, isn't it? You're just not supposed to do that. Ever since we have condemned Tywin Lannister and definitely all the Freys for such an effort, they are universally hated and we cheer everyone who has delivered their comeuppance. Catelyn Stark was a victim of such. She watched her son become a victim of such. Yet now, she is using the same breaking of ancient laws and ancient human decency to get her revenge. And uh, something very important to all of Westeros, but specifically to her husband and her children and the environment they grew up in. So is that not quite hypocritical, maybe? Or is it fair? Is it a one good turn deserves another type thing? The phrase started it, so does Stoneheart just view it as Pandora's box being opened and now everything is fair game. All right, if you're going to do that, I'm going to do it back to you. It's a fair argument. You could make it. But as Brienne saw, it wasn't just phrase strung up in those trees. The broken men, sure, evil men more than likely, but some who possibly had nothing to do with the Red Wedding. So how far can you stretch that argument? How far can those boundaries go? And that's even if we entertain that such a notion is fair, because I'm not so sure. Now, we really don't know the strict rules on guest right. Lady Stoneheart doesn't own the inn at the crossroads. She doesn't appear to make any such claim. She, nor any of these men, were present when Brienne and company ate the bread and salt. So does the obligation only go so far as to who is there at the actual time? Technically, the inn belongs to Jane Heddle here, and she hasn't done Brienne any harm, or any of the others. She's actually helping them. So if someone breaks bread with Stannis in the north, can they then walk freely into Dragonstone or Storm's End and expect to be protected? We don't know if rules are technically being broken, but Lem and Jane and Jack B. Lucky, who's also here, they make it clear they wouldn't really be bothered if they were. Even if there was some written down copy, even if the gods spoke from the clouds and said, you're breaking the rules here, it seems like they're at peace with that. And that's another part of this that's so striking. Jane seems quite in agreement with this arrangement. Now, obviously, Lem and the others are, but Brienne thinks Jane is, is so young to be part of this. Do Willow and Gendry take a large part in it too? Do they know what they're doing? All those children? They are being corrupted in a way. The souls of this brotherhood are being soiled by this taking part in something evil. Now, they love it because it obviously works. They're hungering for more. And that's just very, very troubling to see. And a large part of why I spent so many chapters with them in Storm, I think. I think George means for us to see the comparison. How they've gone from hardened soldiers. Okay, not in a happy time, far from it. But now there's something altogether worse about them. Stoneheart has changed them. Now, as I said, they are clearly successful. So do we just give them a pass for, you know, this being a tool for justice? However it's done, people are paying for the Red Wedding and other crimes on top. Is it just relegated to salt pans because Stoneheart believed I to be there? Or are they doing this to anyone who is threatening the small folk as Barrick would have? That point is still very much unclear to us, but I think we can make our respective guesses. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but was it not a mere three chapters ago we were celebrating the fact that we knew Ryman was about to be captured and killed. Ryman Frey. Hooray for Daisy Mormon and all that. I don't believe this particular guest strike trick is used to kill Ryman, but still, we were quite bothered about the end result. So why do we dabble over the means now? Well, it is a clear progression of what's gone before. Merritt's epilogue POV was a similar but lesser tale. He was told to come and pay ransom and then he would be let off. That was the deal. Instead, he was tricked. He was killed. They went back on their word and they weren't apologetic about it. We talked about then, but there's no real outcry about that incident. There's, there's no large section of the fandom saying, hey, this is really bad. We're just kind of surprised that Stoneheart was there in the first place. But then again, there's also no ancient laws, laws embedded into the land and the soul of the people being broken about the delivery of the ransom. Guest right is something else. It's sacred. It's something we've propped up and championed time and time again. 
George himself has made it explicitly clear through the entire series how important the concept is and how big of a deal it was that it was broken, now it's happening on the regular. We've spoken many times about how this era that we're witnessing in these books is the slow breaking of constants in the world on a scale large and small, not just in dragons and others appearing, but in somewhere like Winterfell falling, in a hand being murdered outside a sept, regicide and the Riverlands burning and the failing of the Night's Watch. It's the crumbling of society, and again, we've said this at multiple points throughout the book, that lets more and more evil in as it goes, and the Red Wedding is often propped up as the major symbol of that. It's often the, the reference for we're in the dark times now type talk for the breaking apart of the society. So Stoneheart and the Brotherhood are just adding to that horror. They are saying that if they can do it, we can too. Our souls be damned, we don't care. And as much as it might rid the world of Freys and other evils, I think you can make the argument it provides an overall negative in the evil it generates. Yeah, we're minusing Freys, but we're adding on much worse. Are you winning anything by becoming as bad as the phrase? Is that really a medal that you want to wear? This is all very hard for me to say because you know how much I love Catelyn and it's a whole different discussion how much it's her giving this command and how much Stoneheart and how different they are and what percentage is, is what but still it is an evil act and it breaks my heart to see Catelyn bring such to the world. It's a very, very interesting character arc. Uh, um, you know I'm going to be discussing this with Lady Gwen and Yokeboy at a later date. But the most damning part of it for me is, well, do you know whose absolute idea of a nightmare this would be? Eddard Starks. This is everything he hates. The trickery and the games, even the use of the noose. This is a cool rhyme. He established in the very first chapter of the series that there is a way you do this kind of thing. You march with your head up high and your sword out bare. You look them in the eyes. Okay, now Stoneheart might look them in the eyes when she makes her decision, those terrible eyes of hers, but that's where the similarity ends. There is zero honour in this. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And Ned would hate everything about it. And then again, to counterpoint that, Ned never had to see his child butchered in front of him, did he? So who's to say what he would do after having seen such a thing? How can we condemn the decisions of a woman who saw such a soul-shattering thing? How can we possibly imagine what she might deem fair after that, especially if she thinks what she's doing might have any chance of saving one of her other children? Now that's a hell of a tangent for just that one paragraph, and I apologise, but this is something really major. It feels major to me. It's an incredibly complex thought and one we'll perhaps see more of in future books. It would definitely fit with my idea that Aya will return to this area and once again change it for the better by being the one to put Stoneheart down and finally ease her from this obviously hate-filled existence. But even forgetting the possibilities of the future, even ignoring that Brienne has been so unfairly caught up in this, even with her dying to defend all these children not forget, it just feels wrong, like basic wrong and man it gets me but let's get back to the chapter i think i led you on a big enough tangent there after not being treated like a prisoner enough quite yet brienne now gets a hood pulled over her face as she enjoys this ride of the damned when they should be throwing her a damn parade brienne being brienne and now being convinced her life is soon to end she focuses on her many failures brienne tut -tut. the ones for jamie the ones for sansa which is really the same one and of her father and Tarth, that extra player in her psyche that had kept popping up its head in the latter half of the book. Brienne now imagines what was at the end of the road so many tried to turn her back down instead of on her quest. She pictures Evenfall and her father's house and the safety it brings, 
That's obviously so enticing now, considering where she is, but we know some small part of Brienne wanted that life anyway, if for the comfort of her father, if nothing else. And that doesn't take away one atom of her being that is the strong knight who wants to be out in the world setting it right. There's nothing in this universe that says she can't want both things to varying degrees. But this visit home morphs into a memory of her being a painful youth, awaiting the horrible embarrassment of Red Ronnet's Rose, and it doesn't feel right, not at all, because, as with every other dream, Oathkeeper is not in her hand and she needs it. Just like Needles wants John and Winterfell and home, Oathkeeper is Jamie and Sansa and the quest, a knight needs their sword. And once again, as Dream Ronnet arrives with his hurtful words, Brienne cries for Jamie. If only she knew that waking Jamie has already defended her honour with that particular moron. Now, she finally properly wakes. Wet woods and foggy rivers have been replaced by a dark, earthy cave. Skyrim alert, I'm always comparing these things to Skyrim, but this one definitely fits. She's at least in better shape than she was, but still very clearly injured. Her first thought is getting her armour back, then getting her beloved Oathkeeper back, and then getting the hell out of there. But how? The answer lies with the only company she has, a man who looks as shoddy as the cave around him, yet is the first person to say anything genuinely nice to Brienne, and Jane's been pretty good as well, but she wasn't exactly comforting, as he tries to feed her and check her fever. We get the first real good news of the chapter. The dastardly fever is gone, so Brienne has defeated another enemy that's just how strong she is. And for first-time readers, some hints are laid as the mystery man says, my lady, when so many have been saying, milady, throughout the chapter. Your face will not be pretty, I fear. It has never been pretty, she thought. Scars, you mean? My lady, that creature chewed off half your cheek. So good news turns bad pretty quickly, even if we could have guessed this from last chapter, but it's still nasty to hear. Brienne tries to bravely frame it as a badge of honour, something all knights must acquire at some point. After hearing about Jane's considerable efforts to tend to her, Brienne finally gets some damned recognition from this ragged man, and some context on what actually went down at the inn. The semi-orphanage was supposed to be under Lem's protection, but his bloodlust has risen to the point he went chasing after Rorge and his companions instead of waiting, thereby exposing the children to danger. Hmm. Duran would like a word of you there, Lem, for your rashness. Or maybe even Jamie, he could tell you about a thing called the Whispering Wood. Lem was tricked, and he would have lost all if not for Brienne, hence Jane's kind treatment she knows what Brienne did for those kids. But even this is finished with another cutting mark, whatever else she may have done. He won those wounds honourably, in the best of causes. Whatever else you may have done, what, what is it you think I've done? So someone is finally giving credit, sure, but he and many others are also keen to accuse. And now we get to the full explanation, or rather Brienne does, as the names have already informed all of us re-readers, of who it is she's been captured by. We were king's men when we began, the man told her. But king's men must have a king, and we have none. We were brothers too, but now our brotherhood is broken. We've talked about why the Broken Man's speech is included before. For one, even standing alone is a hell of a read, but then we were able to apply it to Sandor or those at Salt Pants and others as well. But here comes another, the Brotherhood Without Banners, those we spent so much time with back with Aya, sometimes too much, people would say, why have we had that many chapters with the Brotherhood? Well, this is why. They were those who were the noble heroes, out in the wild in the first three books, fighting for the good of the people and repelling the evil overlords. They were the only ones to represent the small folk, really. It's the closest we've ever got to a true good story, like a fairy tale. But now they too are broken. And why? Well, as Brienne names him Forest of Mere, the ragged man tells us. Lord Beric's fire has gone out from this world. A grimmer shadow leads us in his place. So there it is, finally, a book and a half after the actual event, we have confirmation that Beric is gone. And not just his fire that's gone with him, but the light he cast upon a world in need. 
He was one of the most noble characters we ever met, willing to do more for the innocents than basically anyone else in the story. He's not without his faults, true, but he not only talked the talk, but got things done as well. Yet with him gone, the leadership has changed and the brotherhood has been corrupted, as we spoke about earlier. Now that's not 100% of the story. Years of living in the wild, always on the run, always against a seemingly unending enemy without your loved ones or any assumed escape can make many a person hard. Some might have preferred this lifestyle, even when Beric was alive, but he kept them in check. Now, allowed to walk down that road as much as they like, we can see what has happened, and we've already gotten plenty of hints of how things are getting worse, that enemies are increasing, the food is lessening. This is not the Brotherhood we knew before, and Forrest seems to equally mourn that fact, as well as his dearest friend, the one who changed his life along with so many others. It is very much the, the cost of vengeance, which we're going to be discussing a lot later on and through this uh, episode here. When Forrest leaves, Brienne's first instinct is to find a weapon, any weapon. Her old distrust is showing up, or maybe she's just got a good sense that, given she's been tied and bound and stripped of armour and sword, she might want something to defend herself with. But in the end, she decides Forrest has been kind, and Rock is not really going to be much use anyway. So she relents to eating and listening, as Forrest keeps up this theme of good news coming with the bad. The good, Septon Maribold survived and has been set on his merry way. And it doesn't say so, but I will assume that Dog is with him, and I shall fight anyone who says otherwise. The bad news, Heil and Podrick await the same judgement as her. Heil Hun, uh, you know I'm not a fan anyway. But Pod, no, 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 not Pod. And Brienne, of course, does her best to save the lad, even if such an attempt is fruitless. But we still love her for it. And now, as Forrest really starts explaining the, the state of the Brotherhood, we get a really beautiful passage I'll read to you at length here. My lady, Forrest said, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. And justice? Can that be found in caves? Justice. Forrest smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes. But some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Are you saying you are monsters? I am saying we are human. I love that passage. Even the, the K on the knights, just that little change there. It really backs up what we were saying a moment ago, and Forrest elaborates further as well, explaining that the Brotherhood was never a company of saints, even if their collective goal was mostly pure, and they had more good men than most, but the war, the endless war, and the killing and the dying, and the you strike here and then I'll strike there, and we'll do it all and again and again and again next time, gets to a person. How fitting this is for the close of this book, the book about war and its effect on people, not thrones and countries and kings, people. They've been affected by it as much as anyone else, even if the change of leadership is a huge part of it. They were about justice once, as Forrest says. They had the goal. They even had a king that at least they viewed as noble, whose name they could really rally behind, but that's a long gone memory now. And the goal has changed from justice to vengeance. Trying to truly separate the two is a task too difficult in-universe or without, but I believe we'll all agree one of George's premier messages is revenge is almost as corrosive as whatever you are avenging. It's not good and it's not justice. Justice was what Ned was about. His wife appears to be heading down quite a different path. So what a picture of our starting family that actually creates. I think we could probably fit one or two of the children into these different categories as well by the end. So the Brotherhood are just one superb example of that revenge message and it's brilliantly done. You have to feel for poor Forrest. You look at him now, wearing his rags and sleeping in dark caves. He is utterly, utterly changed from when we saw him last. And his vision power appears to be waning or abandoning him along with his friend. His disenfranchisement is palpable and tough to read. 
Again, we have to feel for him. But the time of him comes to an end too quickly, as Lem returns and is back to his old nasty self. It's weird for us to see Brienne genuinely think he's the Hound, given that we've known the actual Hound ourselves, but then she realises it's merely a case of whoever holds the helm, of the Hound becoming a symbol rather than a person, one that's probably going to go on into wins. Forrest has this to say on Lem's choice of headgear. Forrest sucked in his breath in dismay. Is this true? A dead man's helm? Have we fallen that low? Like with the guest right, becoming as bad as the enemy, even if this is a much lower step, is, is on show here. Lem insists that he will make his foes back down, and that he's not like Sandor or Rorge, which is what every villain says as they're about to become more evil. It's just another sign of the degrading of the Brotherhood. Will they end up torturing villagers next and repeatedly asking where the frays are? Evil creates evil. Brienne is now taken through to what we assume is the Hollow Hill, and it's the biggest gathering of the Brotherhood we've seen since we were last here, when I was witness to a very different kind of justice. Now even that form had its flaws, it wasn't perfect, but it was a level above this for sure. Even if Brienne only recognises one face, we know plenty more as rereaders, or readers in the first place. Especially this living embodiment of the stranger, the judge behind the table, Catelyn Stark herself. Yes, she's here, she's really here. We lost her halfway through Storm, got the very briefest glimpse of her at the end of that book to, to completely blow our minds, and then nothing since. We could almost have imagined it. Sure, we've had to hear rumours for the entire length of Feast, but now we're actually seeing her in the flesh, or something resembling flesh. We're finally in the presence of a much-loved character, especially if you are me. The woman with the second highest overall POV count at the time of her death. She's tied with Aya at 25 halfway through Storm, with Tyrion winning at 29 at the time. And finally, we get a good look at whatever she's become since that event. This living slash unliving being, throwing her vengeance against the world around her, and we actually get to see it. How are we supposed to react to something like that? Catelyn was a huge, huge part of the book. My favourite part. Not just the book. The first three books, and now... Uh, George, what are you doing to us? It's such brilliant writing. And again, I'll try and keep some of this for Saturday's talk, but wow. Now George opts to give us the emotional side first, something to remind us exactly who this monster is and why we care about her so much. She's holding Rob's crown. The very one we saw Ryman Frey's tent pal wearing a few chapters ago. We don't even have the news of Ryman yet, so that's a nice tease, but let's keep it on Catelyn, the character. How emotional must it have been to come across this crown, this that was her son's, this that he died for in many ways, to find it in the hands of someone like Ryman Frey. She must have enjoyed exacting revenge on Ryman even more than all the others, but that still leaves her melancholy, remembering, and unfortunately for Brienne, she's even more blazingly raged than usual. It doesn't help that when presented, Lem tells of Brienne dreaming about Jamie and calling out his name, and we do have to admit it's, it's not a good look, is it? I doubt Stoneheart is all that rational, on the best of her days, but she's really going to run with any bad vibes in this mood, and again, to look at it from her point of view, eh, not a good look. Combine that with Harwin, hi Harwin, stepping forward and presenting Oathkeeper with his lion head pommel, and it's pretty easy to jump on a narrative. It can be so frustrating to read these kind of confusions and misconnections. We want to reach into the book and show them each other's POVs just to get everyone on the same page, but that's really just our privilege of living in the times we do, where information is so present and ready and communication is barely even thought of as an issue. That's not the case in this world, narratives are thought up and leapt upon in an instant, not just because of the lack of communication, but also because no one trusts anyone else in the slightest, which is fair. We saw in Jamie's last chapter that Brendan Blackfish 
was quick enough to make his own story about John being in league with Tywin or what Jamie has been up to since release because that's just how people think in this. You just make up the story and go with it. And it's the same for Stoneheart and Brienne here. It really, really looks like Brienne did turn her cloak. And even without this evidence, it's likely Stoneheart would be pissed purely at the fact that Brienne has not brought a single daughter back with her, let alone two. She is allowed to have this thing about betrayals after suffering through the Red Wedding, after Fionn earned the name Turncloak for murdering murdering her sons and being the first part of Rob's downfall. So I think she's allowed to be a bit itchy about, and also let's not forget what happened to her husband and the whole betrayal thing. Brienne clicks that she's simply not going to get out of this one. Many of the people she's met have been bullheaded and immovable, but this is something else. She will never convince them. But, again, and so often before, what choice does she have other than to try? Even though the story piles up around her, and again, it, it really does look bad if we get into this, Brienne turns her attention to trying to save both Podrick and the beaten Hyle Hunt, who still manages a joke in his condition, because that's just how she is. Tarly's hanged a score of ours. Past time we strung up some of his. So that's good evidence of what we spoke of earlier, isn't it? The never-ending cycle of revenge. The elongation of a war that doesn't need to be fought anymore. As well as letting us know the Brotherhood is not invincible and does have some casualties. It's a real comment on the foolishness of war and its after-effects. All through this, and in the form of classic movie monsterdom, Stoneheart has been silent in her watching. And now she speaks, or tries to. Brienne still has no idea who she is, and this death rattle she calls it gives no clue. Luckily, Harwin is on side to act as translator. I do like that he's found a little niche that he probably thinks is in honour of Ned. Stoneheart asks for the name of the sword. Oathkeeper, Brienne answered. The woman in grey hissed through her fingers. Her eyes were two red pits burning in the shadows. She spoke again. No, she says. Call it Oathbreaker, she says. It was made for treachery and murder. She names it False Friend, like you. Man, you can hear that hiss, can't you? The pure rage. Again, it's hard to blame her. All the evidence points one way, and the name of this sword is just an extra stab in the back for Stoneheart. She saved Brienne, she trusted her, she placed the most important task she possibly could upon her shoulders. She didn't understand Brienne's world entirely, but she treated her with respect. They were friends, were they not? So for this sword to be named of the complete opposite of what she believes Brienne has done? No, that is too much, she's not having that. Hence comes the true reveal of what being portrayed looks like, as we finally see the monster our beloved Catelyn and I really do love her, has become, even more so than we did at Old Stones. And there's small wonder why Brienne is driven to tears now. A general situation, for one, but the sight of it, for two. But how about just the world-breaking idea that someone can come back from the dead, someone you loved, and you feel that you failed? Forrest fills in the gaps for us of how Stoneheart came to be at the cost of Beric, how Beric volunteered for the deed. Did he know what would happen? Did he hope? We know how much he was suffering, and we can now assume that Stoneheart is experiencing some of the same, though she's only been brought back once, not six times, but as we wandered back in Storm, did Beric give a gift or a curse? We're really not ever going to know, I don't think. Death and guest right, muttered Long Jane Heddle. They don't mean so much as they used to, neither one. It's a wonderful symmetry to weave this chapter together. This is why Jane and the others seem so broken, so worn down. When you've seen something like this, what are the rules now? What does it all mean? It almost gives you the sad freedom to do anything because apparently anything goes. There are no rules. People can come back from the dead now. I think all the members will probably have very personal reactions to this truth. Many accepted it with Beric, but not all. It was all very interesting. But back to now. Stoneheart has had enough. She names her price for the life of the free. Keep your oath. Can't give me my daughters? Then give me the man who had my son killed and who 
Happily, you clearly care about so I can go full cruelty and still exact a revenge from you, even if you do succeed. Give me Jamie Lannister. It's beautiful story crafting. We know the story of Brienne and Jamie. We were there. We know how much this digs at Brienne's soul. We know she's telling the truth as she tries to protest, but it doesn't matter to Stoneheart. Now we see the ramifications of Roose saying what he did as he killed Rob. Catelyn, as Brienne names her here, takes her scarred fingers and digs them into her scarred neck. We were there for both of those sets of scars. She says you must choose. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer. The sword and the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. Choice. All of Brienne's arc has been about choice, and here it comes again. She made the tough one before, now she refuses, though that is a choice in itself. She opts for honour, she receives death, and George really brings out his dramatic muscle. Remember those booming drums back in the twins? You can almost hear them now. This time, Brienne understood her words. There were only two. Hang them, she croaked. So in one way, she does do it herself, just like Ned. She gives the order, she gives the sentence. Now everything is happening at once. Lem is dragging her up to the surface. They've already got selected trees. The emotion is running high. Hyle Hunt is trying to bargain for his own life. Brienne is trying to save Podricks, even if she is dead and Bones. Just save Podricks, send him back, use the Sapphire Isle trick again. Even Lem gets caught up in the emotion, shouting about how he wants his wife and daughter back. We've never known that about him, not ever. So now we see how a man breaks and lets his cloak get muddy and sodden and dampen. Now we see the appeal of a Stoneheart when you already had those leanings under Beric. It frames the whole thing, doesn't it? How can we call them evil when he's lost so much? It's just broken people, broken men and women everywhere because of war. And then it's happening. Like Merrick before her, Brienne is lifting up and up and up. For her own death, she actually feels at peace, but it's not herself she's looking at. Let me give you this final quote. Her mouth opened. Pod was kicking, choking, dying. Brienne sucked in the air desperately, even as the rope was strangling her. Nothing had ever hurt so much. She screamed a word. Chills. Huge chills. We spoke at length about how it seems all of Brienne's adventures brought her to a place where she could fulfil her destiny and save children. And it seems to have happened again. There is nothing on earth, no oath or friendship or love that is as important as saving this boy's life. Hence, Brienne sells her soul to do so. Chapter endings or arc endings don't get much better than that. I'm sure, like me, you've seen any number of theories and ideas about what Brienne shouts or what happens next, but I think we're all pretty much in agreement on the word. Sword. That is the choice Stoneheart gave her, and that is what Brienne chooses to save Pod. She will use Oathkeeper to break an oath and to go to collect the man she loves slash cares for, to bring him back. Beyond that, we really don't know. Obviously, this is left on a huge cliffhanger here, and it's absolutely one of the moments first-time readers will just need to put the damn book down for a moment. It all happens so quickly, and many will think she simply screams a word as she dies, that this could be the total end. I can see how you'd think that. After all, there's no more POV here, and none in dance. We have to wait all the way until Jamie's lone dance chapter, which is the 48th chapter of the book, to have any hint that this succeeded and that she's now being sent to collect Jamie. And again, there are any number of theories out there about Brienne actually dying and then being reanimated, etc, etc, which I don't personally buy, but I'm sure we've all heard. I think she, who is someone who's done nothing except try and do good in the world, will shoulder this terrible dark task because she feels she has to. She'll be entirely corrupted by Stoneheart's need for vengeance. There are also a good hundred or so theories about what will happen to Brienne and Jamie, assumedly returning to Lady Stoneheart and the Brotherhood. And none of them are mine, so I won't discuss them here, but we can assume it's not going to be fun for anyone. Past that, and their role in the end of the series, well, we would need another episode or two for that. Now, I'll admit, I don't really know about Brienne. I've got a certain idea where Jamie might end up, or definitely some options, 
Brienne is a lot more difficult for me for the end game, assuming she gets there. Fingers crossed. For now, let's focus on this arc we've just been treated to. This wonderful, wonderful arc with this absolutely brutal ending. The path of doing what's right and getting nothing back, and yet some successes if you want to see them. Podrick did survive, supposedly. Marybold and, and Dog, the orphanage kids, and she killed evil people. But personally, damn, it's just brutal and undeserved. Scars, both physical and emotional, are going to be really present the next time we see her. And personally, I cannot wait. I absolutely adore this arc and everything about it, as I adore Brienne as a person. I say again, this is the arc of this book, and this ending really does envelop a lot of the themes of Brienne and Feast as a whole. She is the very best. I don't think this is the end of her troubles, but I look forward to seeing her making more choices in the future. So there we must leave our wonderful Brienne for the last time for now and move on instead to another ending chapter, our second of the day, Cersei 10. And yes, it's very hard to go from talking about wonderful Brienne to horrible Cersei, whom I hate so much and gets exactly what she deserves, the opposite to poor Brienne. This is a task we've had many times throughout this book, and I guess it's the price for moving forward and talking about Jamie in a little bit. At least we can have a bit of a smirk to cheer us up, because after 10 chapters of seeing Cersei send a seat to his knees, be beyond evil to friend and foe alike, and basically just set up her own demise, those seeds really begin to sprout now in the most chaotic of ways. We've been with her since that moment where she assumed power. It only makes sense her arc ends with its loss. We cast your mind all the way back to the beginning, when Cersei first learnt of her father's death and got so excited about this new position she could take and how she was going to do it better than anyone could dream. Now she's kept up that general idea all the way throughout, despite obvious signs to the contrary. Now, instead of signs, she's getting full-blown waxed to the head to get it through to her, as life is about to change very, very much for Cersei Lannister. Not just in terms of her arc. This is something she's never experienced in her whole life. And uh, she's not going to deal with it very well. But we shall come to that. It's the dressing down of a villain we've had since the beginning. She was our first antagonist, really. We've discussed that before. This is huge for Feast. But really, we've been waiting for four books for something like this to happen. And in classic George fashion, it will turn into something that repulses us in dance. But we aren't quite there yet. So let's enjoy this for now. And I'm actually going to head right into it with Cersei. It's fitting that we start in the company of those who will bring her down. The Faith. For now is a single old scepter and six sparrows. And Cersei still has to battle to keep her insults inside her own head. But she also has to keep her glee. As we learn that her grand plan that's been the focus of the last few chapters has worked. Marjorie has been arrested. The prophecy is defeated. The Tyrells are done. Cersei shall reign supreme forever. Yes, we all remember half your realm is at war and you have no money and the place in general is falling apart, but none of that matters to Cersei, not right now, or ever. This is all she's been focusing on and it's come true. She was right. She had done it. Still, the act has to be kept up for now to keep everything ticking. She has to be seen to tell the faith off for this trap she set, if you remember in the last chapter with uh, Marjorie and Osney, etc., so that no one suspects her hand in it. Although, I personally suspect if anyone in this city still cared enough to really try and find out how Marjorie came to be imprisoned, it really wouldn't take them long to settle on Cersei. As always, she considers herself the peak of cunning and plotting, with this fake indignation and, and the demand for Marjorie's release. She meant for them to see Lord Tywin's daughter. By the time this mummer's fast was done, they would know they had but one true queen, pretty much laying out her objectives for this chapter. Now, the accusations against Marjorie and her cousins are laid out for all to hear this happening in the 
Phone ring, bear in mind. Lewdness, fornication, high treason and adultery. And this all being publicly aired is important to Cersei's act, which she leans into full throttle here. She's got her hand on her breast. She's using words like calumnies. How could anyone doubt such passion? This is all doubled down as planned out in the last chapter when Osney Ketterblack is named as the confessor. And then everyone joins in with his show with their pantomime gasps and dropped jaws, although Pycelle notably turns away and doesn't take part. We have to say this, it definitely is going the way that Cersei planned it. And again, Cersei plays matador defence as she claims Marjorie as a sweet maiden. But no, that has been very creepily disproven as well. The whole throne room is getting in on it now with their gossiping and disbelief. Alton Merriweather brings it to the next notch, proposing that perhaps those wonderful Tyrells that everyone loves so much might not have been what they seem and might have lied and tricked and schemed their way into power. The suggestion is all that's needed for now. Just plant the idea in people's heads so Cersei can maybe move to exploit it at a later date of her own leisure. Let Septimuel suggest maybe they were just deceived rather than lied so Marjorie can remain as the key villain in all this. That's the real focus Cersei wants to keep. And it's time to land the final hit as Cersei suggests that Pycelle be sent to the Sept to examine Marjorie so it cannot be said she did not try her best to prove the girl's innocence. Which leaves it for poor old Pycelle to step to the stage. He seems hesitant. He doesn't want to, but he knows the alternative. I grieve to say, Queen Marjorie is no maiden. She has required me to make her moon tea not once but many times. The uproar that followed was all that Cersei Lannister could ever hope for. Marjorie Tyrell is done, she thought, exulting. Yes, it's pure bliss for Cersei Lannister. Not only is Marjorie physically arrested, but her reputation is in tatters. All the love she stole will soon return to its rightful Cersei. She is a picture of smugness and triumph, and really is just sickly sweet with her victory. It's a great setup by George in terms of pride coming before the very steep fall, and Cersei believes herself the victor of the Tommen, for the people, and definitely over the prophecies of Maggie the Frog. Outside the throne room, the council, such as they are, are really worried about the reactions of the small folk and Mace Tyrell himself, which are fair worries to have. While the old men wring their hands, Arrain Waters makes an active suggestion that the finely completed ships of his be launched onto the Blackwater. He claims it will be propaganda towards the small folk, but hints it is also a defensive measure that will stop an angry mace from crossing back into the city, an essential repeat of the Battle of the Blackwater of Stannis, I'm sure you'll recall. Rereaders actually know this is great setup for his abandonment of Cersei and the stealing of the ships later in the chapter. So the question arises whether Orain was already planning abandonment right here and now, at this point, or whether he was out on the river, heard the news about Cersei's downfall, and knew it likely meant his own demotion and loss of power, and therefore decided to hotfoot it out of there. We don't really have enough information to be sure, but I would say the former. I would say he already thinks this here. We've previously discussed how he was recruiting particular crewmen, how he definitely didn't want to fight against the Iron Fleet, and perhaps he didn't specifically plan to abandon right now on this day, although it would make the most sense, but ended up seeing it was the right time. Either way, I believe it was planned. You can even make an argument he does this while secretly being in league with Tyrells, tricking Cersei into thinking she can defend against Mace so she doesn't implement any further measures while actually pulling the rug from underneath her feet. We've no proof of that, but the point is the great abandonment of Cersei Lannister is building, even in what she believes, her golden hour. And speaking of setup, to calm Harris Swift and her other worried counsellors, Cersei promises she will be the one to go to the Sept and argue for a trial, so the small folk have no reason to be angry with her, as she ensured the court did not have at the chapter beginning. Heavy foreshadowing there, I don't think you need me to tell you. With everything in place, Cersei heads off to Tommen, who is really upping the cuteness scale as he pretends to fish with his cats. 
and she actually starts crying in front of him she's so happy as much as this is all about her and her power and her protection and her winning her own perceived battles we do see that Cersei genuinely thinks she's protected her son so it's worth thinking about unfortunately this is not a purely motherly visit Cersei also has need of Tommen to sign the warrants for all these names the blue bar willingly gave up and she keeps them blank so that Tommen can just put his stamp on them as he likes to do just as we saw back at the beginning of his kingship in a Jamie chapter of Storm Jamie will even refer to this moment later on today so let's not let up on the Cersei hate just yet the manipulation and use of her son is still rampant with that use fulfilled he gets sent off completely unaware of what he's done to some guys he actually really likes and attributed to in terms of his wife he doesn't even know she's been arrested yet and it really does make you feel for him he's just clueless this is actually our goodbye to Tommen for the book we won't see him again until the dance epilogue it's been a pretty major book for him and Marcello as well even if he fared much better than his sister physically the being pulled in different directions the terrible mothering by Cersei the attempts of fathering by Jamie at the beginning there let's not forget them and the very clear influence of the Tyrells and his own attempt at fighting back against Cersei before being made to hurt his whipping boy poor Pate at least he seems happy enough at the moment here's hoping that feast doesn't turn out to be the highlight for this guy now Cersei gives the order for these men on the list to be arrested this time selecting Osfried as her kettleback of choice he being commander of the city watch what she lists as 6,000 strong hmm is that right I would have to look back at the numbers because it seems like last time it was mentioned there was a much lower total now have they just grown or is Cersei just ignorant of what she's actually got at her command it seems the latter is more likely but I could be wrong I might have forgotten here someone correct me all of it is just a reminder of how corrupt this thing is how planned and written out is, is by the higher-ups we're reminded that the red wine twins must be found innocent so no one questions her and it keeps the red wines from getting too angry morally it's horrible but at least she's thinking of all the angles hence aside from the red wine twins the dungeons are filled once more with the innocent and Kyburn must be very pleased mustn't he after that initial setup in this chapter it is now time Cersei dresses and prepares for her trip to the Sept of Baelor and her meeting with the High Sparrow Jamie always said the hardest part of any battle is just before, waiting for the carnage to begin. It's quite ironic for her to think that when she really will be involved in a physical battle soon and will be thinking of Jamie a lot more kindly as well. Taina goes along to win over Aloy Torrell and the string pulling in this whole process, again, really does make us feel uneasy, doesn't it? And also they have Boris Blunt and 10 Lannister guards to escort them. Now that's an important detail because 10 guards are nothing against the new Knights of the Faith that Cersei has created. Perhaps they wouldn't have been able to do much anyway against that sheer number, that crowd that we saw last time when we first came to the Sept earlier in the book. But thanks to Cersei's arming, there's definitely no chance now. And Boris Blunt definitely isn't going to be charging in to rescue her, is he? That's actually a scene I would have liked to have included. When someone comes out and tells Boris that Cersei has been imprisoned, and he basically says like, alright, uh, see you later. The Litteride is used to highlight Cersei's failsafe if Marjorie should wish for trial by combat. We haven't had one of those in a little while after all, so let's get another one in, please. As Cersei tells us, four of the Kingsguard are out of the city and unavailable to fight for Marjorie. Although, in Tyrion's original trial by combat back in the Eyrie, he made it seem as if naming someone far away and then making everyone wait was at least a known practice, if not common. He names Jamie, doesn't he? And Jamie, here and now, is only in River Run. He's not so far as Dawn like Balon Swan or Aris Oakheart. So, could he not come back? Hmm. Cersei also claims that Osmond would never be allowed to defend her because he's the brother of the accuser. I'm not sure that would be readily accepted as a, an excuse myself. So what if he's his brother? If the suggestion is that he's in league with Osney and he wants to find Marjorie guilty, are you also suggesting he'd let himself be killed to prove that? 
That option works for Cersei, but no one else. But either way, she believes that only two options left are Boris and Merrin. And Merrin will apparently be told to say he's feeling ill. That's another weird part to me. Is Cersei worried that Merrin's skill might actually be a danger to her plans? Does she just really want to get rid of Boris? Is illness even an acceptable excuse for denying a royal order to protect your queen? If Marjorie put her foot down and said, no, I want Merrin Trent defending my life, does he get to go, no, I, I don't feel like it today? Hmm. What would be funny is if Boris just overheard this order as they go along in the, uh, in the litter here, but apparently not. Also on the ride, we have this ever-mysterious Russell, son of Taina, being brought up again. And again, Taina blows off Cersei in terms of bringing him to the city to be Tommen's playmate. George is really making a point of repeating this, but why? Normally when he does that, it's something important later on, and maybe it will. But is it just to show that, like Lorraine, Taina is really hedging her bets and is ready to escape at a moment's notice, as we'll find out later she, she does? Or is it there to put doubt in our mind over Taina's loyalty? Or will this Russell actually be turning up and playing an important role at some point? Cersei doesn't take too much notice either way because she's far too deep into her own victory. When we reach the Sept of Baelor, things are quite changed from last time. There's no giant pile of bones for a start, that's probably the most notable, but also the horde of people in from the countryside are gone, replaced by a smaller and more controlled group like Marjorie. So things are looking a lot brighter for this visit so far, and some of that again is George just playing the setup, but we might also take it as a sign of the High Sparrow getting active and putting that huge crowd to work, whether it be for, as knights or for some other purpose. Again, Cersei takes no notice because no one tries to stop her this time. Everything is going very well in comparison. The only bother in the slightest is the High Sparrow making her wait while he prays, but he still immediately agrees to her seeing Marjorie, so all in all, a much more successful visit. We've already had a princess in the tower, so this time let's try a queen. Where Cersei finds Marjorie now is the sweetest cherry she could possibly conjure up to top her cake. This is what she's really been wanting, to see her rival stripped of all that made her happy, that made others love her, to be humiliated and treated no different to a common prisoner. And why does Cersei want that as punishment? It's because that's what she feels would be the very worst thing that could happen to her. So it's a damn bold move for George to show us the exact outcome of Cersei before she even suffers it, right down to the narrow room, the cold, the sleep torture of being woken every hour, and let's not downplay it as this really is torture, not being able to sleep in that manner. It messes you up. There's another layer of irony there. Cersei might have used Kyburn and a razor to get her false confessions, but really, she's no different to what the High Sparrow and the Faith do here. This all gives us a clear look at Marjorie, whom we've obviously never seen in this kind of situation before. We've barely had a one-on-one -on -one conversation like this with her at all, and it initially does point out some of the haughtiness of being a Highborn. The fact she's flabbergasted that they dared touch her clothes, the fact she mentioned the said close before her cousins. Marjorie might be politically skillful and shrewd, etc., but that doesn't mean she can't be up to as well. She very clearly views these people as beneath her, and this shouldn't happen to someone of her stature. We've seen hints of such before. On the flip side, she also shows what I would say is true concern for her cousins. Cersei would likely say that is just out of concern of what they might say, in the same way that she'll be really worried about Taina Merriweather in a moment, but I choose to believe Marjorie in this instance. Cersei, as you'd expect, delights in delivering bad news to Marjorie, just as she did with Loras. Firstly, that the cousins are also accused, but especially when she tells of the trial, the upcoming trial. Cersei really puts on her sweet voice here, as she hints that Marjorie could select a trial by battle. Marjorie thinks, great, send me Garland, my brother Garland from the Reach, and I don't blame her. He'd sort out almost anyone, and definitely a cattleblack. But Cersei tightens her trap, and all fronting and manners are forgotten when Marjorie clicks that this is all by design. It's half annoying and half fun for Cersei to see this reaction. Obviously, she wants Marjorie to select trial by combat so she can be sure of her demise, but this breaking of the facade and losing your lady's armour, your courtesies, is also a victory in Cersei's head, as we saw 
again, back with the news on Norris. And it's fun for us as well, seeing someone finally say, forget the bullshit, let me tell you to your face how it is, and Marjorie does not fail to deliver. Will you make me call my goalers and have you dragged away, you vile, scheming, evil bitch? Born of frustration and Cersei's upper hand, sure, but just great to read because we've been thinking the same for a lot of this book. And Cersei actually does a really admirable job of not whispering something evil back and instead maintains her own poise, although not before insisting, Marjorie is done thanks to Cersei's many evidences. With that, she leaves her, and we shall not see Marjorie again in the published text either, or any preview chapters. We will hear of her release into Randall's custody at a later date, so at least we know this particular imprisonment and torture is escaped from, if not her accusations, but this is the final time she'll actually appear on the page. This politically brilliant, I don't mind saying for her skill in optics at least, Queen, who, while she does manipulate and control Tommen, also seems way, way better for him than his own mother. I personally hope we do see a released Marjorie gunning for Cersei at some point in the future, if there is one to be had before the dragons start calling. Where Marjorie will go in the future of the books is one of the more confusing threads. A retreat to Highgarden is arguable, or will they be caught up in the eventual destruction of King's Landing, perhaps becoming prisoners of Fagon? It's possible. I'd really like to see her meet Arianne personally. That's all another talk we might have to have at a later date, because there are just numerous possibilities. I personally lean towards the Tyrells sticking around longer than most others do, even if their power is taken away by the friends in the reach problem. It definitely requires extra thought though, so we'll have to save that for another time. For now, we have to deal with the present and with Cersei, because she is going back to talk to the High Sparrow. Yeah, it's go time. On the way, Cersei again thinks of her accompanying scepters as shriveled and feeble. Some of that is just highlighting the emphasis she puts on physical beauty equaling worth, but it's also a nice tip of the hat by George, given how, soon enough, Scepters will overpower her. It also shouldn't be ignored that Cersei is headed down into the heart of the hill, just as her old friend Brienne did a minute ago. It's brilliant chapter sequencing, as always, to have a chapter where Brienne is accused of things she did not do, put next to a chapter where Cersei is accused of things she absolutely did do. Don't worry, Forrest, there's at least some justice in the world still. You spoke of the Queen, the High Septon said. She resisted the urge to say, I am the Queen. I just love how much that annoys her. But anyway, Cersei keeps up with her pro-Marjorie act, and as the last time she was here, believes herself to be really smart by suggesting what she thinks is an original idea that will actually be part of her doom in a moment. This time round, it's the idea that Tommen loves Marjorie too much and cannot be the judge. Therefore, why doesn't the Faith just handle it instead? As the High Sparrow tells us, this was another aspect of power taken away from them by the Targaryens. So if Cersei were to restore it, it could be used against her enemies. Perfect. And he agrees that Marjorie must be defended by the Kingsguard only. Brilliant, this could not be going any better. Let us celebrate with a fake tear and feigned grief as Cersei secretly does cartwheels in her soul. And that's what makes the next part so bloody brilliant. I must return to the castle. With your leave, I will take Sir Osney Kettleblack back with me. The small council will want to question him and hear his accusations for themselves. No, said the High Septon. George is obviously capable of writing grand speeches or whole lines that turn into immortal quotes, but he achieves just as much with a simple, two-letter word here. Cersei feels it as a splash of icy water. To the reader, it is definitely a slap too. No? Wait, what? What does he mean? What does this mean in general? It is such a superb choice. We've just examined Marjorie's haughtiness of being touched and stripped and forced into things, and this is the same beginning. Cersei is the queen. She believes herself the ultimate power in the world. The whole point of that, of everything she's worked towards, is that people do not get to say that word to you anymore. So to have it here, so jarringly simple, in the middle of what is Cersei's dream day, is amazing. She honestly doesn't quite know how to handle it, because surely no one would ever say that. She must have misheard. 
Even if we are dropping her personally out of the equation, the title of queen is above everyone else. A highborn is above the low. You don't say things like that to them. That is the way it has always been. No one would dare challenge such an idea. Well, remember what we were saying earlier about these bone-deep ideals breaking apart? Cersei's just stunned and just kind of goes along with the High Septon when he says he'll bring her to Osney Cattleblack. I am the queen, she told herself. Lord Tywin's daughter. She has to remind herself over and over again. Again, maybe she misheard or something or misunderstood. No one would defy her in that manner, especially given what she's just gifted him. Well, she finds out the truth pretty quickly. Here's another quote. Osney Kettleblack hung naked from the ceiling, swinging from a pair of heavy iron chains. He had been whipped, his back and shoulders being laid but almost bare, and cuts and welts crisscrossed his legs and ass as well. The Queen could hardly stand to look at him. She turned back to the High Septon. What have you done? Now it begins to hit, but Cersei won't let herself think the plan has failed just yet. So the High Septon explains how truly mad he is. He enjoys being whipped himself. He believes mercy includes being given to death. Maybe he's been to Bravos for all we know. And most importantly, he believes that more torture than necessary can provide further results, which is what Osney gave him, as his answers changed from Marjorie Tyrell and started focusing on someone else. Aye, the chains rattled softly as Osney twisted his shackles. That one there, she's the queen I fucked, the one sent me to kill the old High Septon. He never had no guards, I just come in when he was sleeping and pushed a pillow down across his face. Cersei whirled and ran. The wildfire has been lit, everybody. Let's watch it go up in a boom. Cersei always wanted to be more physical, and she definitely gets the chance now, as she goes sprinting through the sept and slamming doors behind her, all the while thinking the Kettleblacks will be her saviours, even if she has to send the whole gold cloak regiment in here. But what about Tainer? Uh, yeah, that's pretty damn bad for her if they start asking questions from Tainer. As it turns out, it doesn't matter. She's not going to be saving anyone. She might get past the first few scepters, but there are more of them on her, and her cries of, I'm the Queen, have never been less effective. They know. They don't care. Marjorie's story comes back to haunt her, as Cersei, an untouchable queen in her mind, almost a god really if we're getting through to it, is dragged like a child to a cell, stripped naked and left as a prisoner. She cites her surname, she cites her brother, she cites her title, and yet the door still closes. George could easily have just left the chapter here for a real dramatic moment and given us the rest as a cap-off. He might have even planned as much originally, but the chapter sequencing of this last chunk is just too good for that, so he keeps us going as Cersei prepares to fight back. There's irony in that as well. She took delight over Marjorie's breaking of both Loras and the imprisonment, the abandonment of dignity and poise. Now she's in the same boat, she thinks it's courageous to be fierce and defiant. She's a lion. But I think lions are probably smart enough to not tear up their only clothing, destroy their only water source, destroy their waste collection, and then scream until they can scream no more. It is, simply, a tantrum. Oh, I don't blame her. She's been imprisoned. It's damn horrible. But she simply can't compute that this would happen. Not to a Lannister, never mind the Queen. Already, at this early stage, Cersei Lannister turns into the pathetic, pitiful thing, naked and cold on the floor, regretting the decisions she just made and clinging to ideas that are clearly no longer true. How can they leave me like this? Without so much as a fire. I am their Queen. It would be hard to do anything at this point, but Cersei will never come to comprehend that people might try a bit harder to rescue her, or she might never have ended up here in the first place if she had just acted a bit differently, and normally if she'd just been a bit nicer. Instead, the sleep torture comes with Septuinella, all the way until dawn, where things don't change much. She even still thinks she's in a position to demand things. A day passes, and Cersei is still clueless, even hilariously thinking on how, when she gets out of here, she will execute the council she chose and find better ones. Yes, even here, in this position, 
Cersei cannot learn a single lesson. She had a cherry atop her cake early on. So now it's our turn, as she realises the only shouting she ever hears outside is from people who want Marjorie. No one wants Cersei Lannister. This is the great fall we've been waiting for. Much as we've been referring to as a fact throughout this reread, it generally is a huge surprise for most first-time readers. I think throughout this book you can sense that Cersei is setting herself for a fall of some sort because that's what tends to happen to the arrogant and stupid, but to this magnitude? This is the worst scenario for her to be taken away from any sign of privilege and power that she holds so dear. And to be honest, most readers must really relish the moment. Yes, we'll come to examine that feeling when the horror of her walk of shame is revealed, and yes, we do understand a lot more of her than we used to, but this is still Cersei Lannister, the evil queen. This is still the woman who had Lady killed out of spite, who killed the king, who led a coup against Eddard Stark, who unleashed the king that killed him, who vexed Tyrion at every turn, who abused Sansa at every opportunity, who had Robert's bastards killed, who gave Jane Paul to Littlefinger, who threatened Shay, who corrupted a trial, who nearly killed Lancel, who sold a mother into slavery, who gave a whole heap of women to Kyburn, who abused Tommen, who basically started this whole damn thing anyway. And probably a bunch of things I'm forgetting as well. This is the original villain. Whatever she's transformed into, and as much as we have Peter Baelish rise up and neurons on the horizon and so are the others, Cersei is the original. And this is comeuppance. This is justice, awful as it looks. Still, we know that will never occur to her, and it might never be enough for us, really. In the meantime, Kyburn appears on the second day, perhaps the last ally she has, though he's definitely not bothering with cushioning his blows. The trial idea Cersei set up just moments ago, she is now to be tried by the same, for murder, treason and fornication. The crimes of old have come back. Best be glad they don't know that full list I just said. At least Tommen is still in power, but it really hurts to hear that he's upset. It's no surprise, a moment ago he was being fought over by two women. Now both are gone and he has no idea why. The poor little kid. And Marjorie is to be tried too, so okay, yay. The plan didn't totally fail. The Blue Bard still sings the songs they want. They just never accounted for Cersei being caught within her own trap. And that's pretty much the end of the good news as Kyburn lists off the avalanche of failures coming home to roost as her allies all flitter away. Firstly, the council has changed. And again, still hilarious that Cersei thinks it is her council and not Tommen's. Kyburn has been dismissed even if he still technically keeps his job. Harris Swift and Pycelle are still there but are working for themselves and definitely not in her interest. And that's about all for the similarities. The gold cloaks are gone, stripped away from Osri Cataplac. Wharton and Taina have scarpered to Longtable, even if Cersei does see that as semi-good news. Arrain Waters and their brand new ships have also gone off to a life of piracy or maybe even a allegiance of Stannis, but definitely not with Cersei. And, likely, worst of all, the main point of her plan, the whole engine behind it, getting rid of the Tyrells, has crumbled. Mace has abandoned Storm's End. Randall Tarly has done the same at Maidenpool. Both ride for the city. Soon, there will be more Tyrells and Reachmen than ever before. She's failed. She's lost. And again, let's take a moment to be smug, because this part, even for first-time readers, is not surprising whatsoever. It is not surprising Pycelle is working against her. Have you seen how she's treated him? Harris Swift did zilch under her command. Now he's active because it's against her. Arrain completely tricked her. The Merryweathers saved themselves, and the Tyrells she tried to corner and manipulate are coming back in force. Everything that has happened is a direct result of her own actions. There is no fate or destiny in this cell, only consequences. But she does have Kyburn, and he gives her the lone path of escape. Ironically, it's the same avenue she left Marjorie. Trial by combat, and he still has this monster in his dungeons. Success! Oh, wait, no. 
She's tripped by her own rope again, isn't she? This time, Cersei is aware enough to see it. This time she did laugh. It was funny. Terribly funny. Hideously funny. I can have a champion no man can defeat, but I am forbidden to use him. I am the Queen, Kyburn. My honour can only be defended by a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. Now, we re-readers know that will be worked around later, but for now, it seems as if all hope is extinguished, and Cersei knows deep inside how bloody guilty she is. That leaves only one choice. The original choice, the one she has been choosing her entire life. Jamie. Come at once. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. After dismissing her brother upon his return from war, cheating on him, if you can call it that, after convincing herself that she is better off without him and she always deserved better anyway, and after an entire lifetime of abusing him in their relationship, Cersei admits she needs Jamie. If there is anything she is sure of, is that he will come for her because he always has. He's always done what she wants, really, save for their most recent of interactions. Whatever has passed between them of late does not count, does it? Come on, Jamie, I, I was just being queen. You understand, don't you? We're still cool, aren't we? And I think she really does believe he will come. But what about when he gets there? My queen, said Kyburn. Have you forgotten? Said Jamie has no sword hand. If he should champion you and lose, we will leave this world together as we once came into it. He will not lose, not Jamie. Not of my life at stake. Cersei is likely in denial about this as well. Jamie is the warrior. He'll find some way to win for her. He's always said he would fight for her life. And even if he doesn't, Cersei would prefer to die with him than alone. I don't think it ever occurs that Jamie might want different. So there's our smugness again. We've spoken multiple times about how the biggest turning point in Jamie's arc is finally choosing to get away from Cersei. So the first time reader wonders if that will all be undone now that something this serious has come up. Will he forgive all he's had confirmed on his Riverlands trip that he's heard from Tyrion? Will the hurt and insult she's dished out all through this book be put aside? For rereaders, we get to smile, as we'll find out in a second. And I have to say, I think I've never really appreciated the final structure of these three chapters. The weaving together of their endpoints is nothing short of masterful. We've still got Sam to cap it, I know, and well, we're still going to see Jamie in a moment, but that link back to the prologue and the promise of magic on the horizon is great but the three main pillars of A Feast of Crows are placed absolutely perfectly here. We end with Brienne having to seek out Jaime for Stoneheart, with Cersei sending for Jaime to save her from a fate she deserves, and Jaime unknowingly having to choose between the two of them. Obviously, we'll discuss this in a moment, but we cheer a very loud cheer indeed when Jaime decides to turn his back on Cersei and not answer the call, choosing this new, semi-honourable life he's carved out for himself. We cheer until we realise that allows him to stay within reach of Brienne, and therefore perhaps get taken to his death with Stoneheart. So which are we really supposed to root for? Absolutely brilliant structuring and a superb ending to this book. Now as for this chapter, as for this POV, it's goodbye Cersei, but not forever. She gets two more chapters in Dance, and okay, very brief compared to the ten we get, but at least it's not a total goodbye, and her fortunes really are going to change very much in Dance. So we don't have to say too much of a goodbye or round up here, I think we've discussed at length what this arc means for Feast and for the series in general. It's something I don't think anyone would have guessed in the first three books, even though we might have clamoured for it, and really it didn't disappoint, did it? Right from the beginning, she was nuts. She was exactly as we expected she would be. She became even worse. She proved herself to be pretty much the worst ruler across the board in, in the whole series, especially in King's Landing. I mean, things even went better over Joffrey. Now, I know he had better people with him, but says he's an adult. She's supposed to be doing better than this, and she doesn't. 
I think the whole thing is just this beautiful... I know I'm repeating myself. I've said this all through these episodes. But the whole thing is just a beautiful uh, encapsulation of how rubbish she is, how utterly evil she is, how payback comes for her. So, well, I like the end of this chapter very much. We shall leave her there because we don't, we don't really have to say goodbye to her. She's coming back. And we've got a lot to get on with. So let's go from her to her brother. Let's get the ending of this little letter she's sending as we head for the Riverlands and for Jamie 7. We're not at the end yet. We still have to finish this little trio of main stars. No offence to Sam, of course. Obviously, the majority of this coming chapter is not concerned with the Cersei conundrum at all, although readers always like having that little bit of extra knowledge over the characters, and is instead the resolution, kind of, of the Riverlands situation or at least the Riverrun situation, as we find out Jamie's plan worked, kind of, and we get to re-meet yet more characters in an area that will very be clearly set up for wins in many different ways, and Jamie, well, he actually gets to feel some success for once. This is kind of a happy chapter for Jamie for the most part. There's always problems, of course, but still, he actually gets to win a little bit, and I have to say I really do like this chapter for that reason. It's probably my favourite out of these four it's either this one or Brienne, and Brienne's just so sad that it's a... Uh, well, it's not a hard choice, really. I'm going to give it to Jamie taking taking a lap of honour for once, and especially for what he does at the end. I think you know what I'm talking about. This is the greatest Jamie chapter in that regard, at least. And, well, I just like talking about Riverrun, and we really are setting up what was probably my most anticipated storyline of Winter of Winter, what is happening in the Riverlands. So it's a little bit of a combination with Brienne there, but still, we get a lot of setup here. So let's get into it, shall we? We begin with a slew of information. Clearly, something has gone wrong with the plan that we left with in Jamie 6. Emin Frey is incensed. Something did not go the way it was supposed to. Yet, Riverrun did indeed fall. We're told that pretty much straight away. And peaceably, if we're led to believe. But Edmure did something. And Jamie gives us the answer to what? The Blackfish has escaped, thanks to Edmure finding a loophole in the demands made by Jamie back in that tent. Perhaps he did have to give up his family's castle to his hated enemy and suffer that humiliation. There was nothing in the contract about turning a blind eye if the Blackfish wanted to escape. That responsibility lied with Jamie. And to be fair, it was Jamie's forces, Jamie's men, who allowed him to escape. Here's your quote. He never told me where he meant to go. And you never asked. How did he get out? Fish swim. Even black ones, Edmure smiled. Hooray! It's good news. The best we've had for the Tullys in ages. The blackfish has escaped. He's got away. Perhaps it might be the last good news we get for them, uh, for all we know, maybe in the entire series. This at least goes some way to dampen the wound of a fray now sitting in our beloved river run. We love the blackfish in general, and not only does this mean he's still alive, first off, it means there's at least one free Tully. One man who is not willing to ever let Rob's campaign completely die. So it's just that spark of possibility, just being kept alive. Not with us, not now. Nothing's going to happen straight away, but it is still there. And we'll talk of what those options for, might be later in terms of making this spark back into a fire. Although I think you all know the main ones by now. We've discussed them. Well, I've certainly discussed them in multiple places, writing for History of Westeros, talking to Radio Westeros. So I won't repeat, I won't bash you over the head with those too much, but I think you know by now. It's good news for us, sure, but bad for Jamie. Really very annoying for Jamie, and a good way to sour what should be a proud victory, because he did it. He got Riverrun back without spilling a drop of blood, without having to break his oaths to Catelyn Stark, without just handing over the operation to the Freys and letting them do all those nasty things he wanted to do. But this really does spoil it. He knows the feelings of the Riverlords and the majority of the small folk. He knows the Brotherhood would likely be at least more sympathetic to the Tully cause rather than the Lannister Freys, 
and he really knows how capable Brynden is, so this does properly mess things up. It's no wonder he's in a bad mood, even with this victory, and he lets Ednorn know about it, as he threatens what could happen not just to him, but also Roslyn in the depths of Castle Rock. And that's enough to get the story out of Ednorn, who was previously really enjoying this one very small victory and the overall defeat that is his life now. We see that he has that same hatred for Jamie, perhaps even more so than before, as we learn the Blackfish swam away beneath the Watergate, beneath the boom, and out along the river. It's poetic and brilliant, a clever plan, absolutely suited to not just Riverrun, but to Tully's in general. They are the fish, aren't they? Whether it was Edmure's plan or Brynden's, I like to think Edmure had to persuade him to abandon in the first place, but then Brynden would have come up with the details himself. Edmure then fulfilled his part by waiting as long as possible to hand the castle over. So Brynden's had a few days head start now, he's already travelling along a river, he could be anywhere by this point. A normal man would be hard to find with that kind of head start, wouldn't he? But a man whose main strength is the command of terrain, who can nearly take his pick of riverlord chums to hide with we and jamie know no amount of hunters and hounds are going to find him adam marbrand he's been tasked with that and he probably is the best guy for the job but even he will fail still jamie has to put on a brave face for his moaning uncle emin okay yes he's gone but there's lots of food left over you've got a garrison of 200 so you're sitting pretty and it feels like those specific details are included because they will be important for some new assault on the castle perhaps that's just wishful thinking on my part but i think there is more evidence to come in this chapter to be fair jamie is already nursing private concerns that brynden will return at the head of a band of outlaws is what he says whoever he comes with jamie is also convinced the blackfish meant to continue the fight which has us all rubbing our hands excitedly doesn't it especially as jenna reminds her husband it's up to them to hold it if they want to keep it and this is what emma replies to be sure riverrun is mine and no man shall ever take it from me okay good luck with that emma and i look forward to revisiting this line later and seeing how true that is Jenna and Emin depart and that leaves the two old adversaries alone for one last time. And Edmure uses it as a chance to highlight that, as we've discussed, Riverrun is a home. This is something I had to write a lot about during the castles book and Riverrun was one of my favourite chapters because I do love this castle. This is probably the second most homely castle we see in the series behind Winterfell, obviously. That's the main home. The Red Keep doesn't have that feel. The Eyrie certainly doesn't have that feel. Dragonstone, obviously, and well, the others we haven't even seen. Riverrun is the next best thing we've got to this being a place of love and family and happiness. Maybe not at the point we see, but at some point. We saw that so much through Catelyn's eyes, and other people have memories of it too. Edmure, here for one. In a moment, we'll get to that. And it's been lost, just like Winterfell was. In some ways worse, at least Winterfell is empty for now. That's going to come later. This is one that's been taken by your enemy. It's been usurped from you, just been stolen away, and you've got to watch it happen. To Edmure, it's not just a chip to be moved around on the board. It's not just a salary to those who support the right king. Like I said, this isn't the Red Keep that switches to whoever's in power at the time. It's not an official building. It is a home. It means something to the Tullys. And Edmure gives us this really beautiful passage that I'll read at length to you. This was my father's solar, said Tully. He ruled the Riverlands from here, wisely and well. He liked to sit beside that window. The light was good there. And whenever he looked up from his work, he could see the river. When his eyes were tired, he would have Cat read to him. Littlefinger and I built a castle out of wooden blocks once, there, beside the door. You will never know how sick it makes me to see you in this room, Kingslayer. You will never know how much I despise you. I like that passage. So bypassing of Hoster's considerable faults aside, because, well, that's a long list, I really do admire Edmure for taking the chance to say this. He's just been threatened, like, 30 seconds ago with lifelong torture. This man in front of him completely controls his life, yet he says it anyway. He makes it known what this place means to him, meant to all his family, of which he is basically the last, and how much he truly detests Jamie. Like we say, he's not holding back. 
And we had a lot of that in the tent, but it really comes through a lot more powerful here. And because this means a lot to him, same as it does to Brynden. That's why he's bothering to swim out along a river and maybe incite a little rebellion. We'll have to see if that comes true. But Riverrun does mean a lot. And that's one of the reasons it's one of my favourite castles. But in fairness, Jamie does give a good damn response when he says, I've been despised by better men than you, Edmure. Yeah, that is good. So that's farewell to Edmure. Or is it? You know my opinion on that in terms of the Winds of Winter prologue, so I'm not going to repeat myself here again. Uh, I'm going to have to point you to the Radio Astros live stream I appeared on several times in this chapter. I think I don't want to just repeat myself over and over again. I can't say with confidence Edmure is going to have a long life, but I personally don't think it's going to be spent in the depths of Castle Rock. My one hope for him, whatever happens, is that he has the chance to do something to aid the rebellious effort against the Freys and Lannister. Maybe one thing, maybe many, but other than helping the Blackfish escape, he's not had the opportunity for anything yet. He's just been denied that the whole time. So I'm hoping he really does get at least one chance. Fingers crossed, because I do like Edmure. I think he's he is really one of the best examples of lords we get through the series. He doesn't just doesn't get the opportunity to show that off as much as he should have, just because of his position and the fact that Rob was a king at his castle. If this if Rob had set up his base operations elsewhere we might have had a bit more Edmure good decisions, but not so far. So here's hoping. The parade of newly acquired captives continues as Sybil Spicer, Boo Hiss, and Jane Westerling, Hurrah, enter the solar. As with everyone else in this section of the book, it's been a long time since we've seen these characters. Jane, we last saw saying goodbye to Rob Thrice just as he left Riverrun. Since then, she's been cooped up in this castle, having to hear of the horribleness outside. And even with loving relatives to look after you, this would be an incredibly trying time for anyone. Unfortunately, Jane doesn't have loving relatives, she has Sybil Spicer, perhaps queen of the bad mothers in this book, if not for Top Dog Cersei. We all remember our hatred for her, as we discussed when she first appeared in Storm of Swords, and when we spoke of her involvement and complicity in the Red Wedding and this kind of secret deal she had under the table with Tywin. Most of which we actually learn here today, but we did discuss it at length back then. Her introduction to us here doesn't do her any favours, as it turns out not only did she take the crown that Rob gave to Jane, but that she also knocks her daughter about when she senses disobedience. So we get a big cheer for Jamie when he immediately puts an end to that. No more hitting your daughter, please. Poor Jane, or it says she curled up in her chair like a frightened animal. Oh dear, as if things aren't bad enough hurt already. She's got to have a mother like this. We've really got a feel for the abuse she's been putting up with since Rob's death, and maybe before for all we know. And Jamie storms back into our good books for protecting her so. Also, in terms of Sybil just being here, it's a good connection with this being right next to a Cersei chapter, given that Sybil is Maggie the Frog's granddaughter. If only Jamie knew how much of his life had been shaped by a relative of the woman that sat in front of him. Jamie, in terms of Jane, he names her pretty enough, but not worth losing a kingdom over. So I guess there's just some aspects of Rob Jamie will never understand, not in his current mood anyway. To Jane, whom he figures is an innocent in all this, Jamie is both respectful and polite, both to her and the memory of Rob, which is also quite nice isn't it but he also has important questions such as whether jane is carrying rob's child it's another kind of more important layer of what we already discussed about edmure's child with Roslyn in the last chapter in the last jamie chapter perhaps not a danger now but in the future and the child of a king we said it was bad enough a child of edmure's as a lord of riverrun but a child of a king the king of both the riverlands and the north that could be very dangerous couldn't it so it's very very important stuff for the future of the riverlands and the seven kingdoms as a united whole because you could start off a whole civil war again with that couldn't you jane doesn't answer instead bursting into tears and trying to flee sybil answers instead claiming she made sure her daughter was not pregnant yeah we're in that territory again Still, a list of abuses grows because it certainly seems 
Jane would have liked to be pregnant with Rob's child. We know from her previous conversations with Catelyn, she and Rob did not waste the short time they had to go, if you get my meaning, so opportunity was ample. So are we to assume that Sybil tricked and forced Jane into drinking moon tea throughout that relationship? It's possible. Or, much worse, is this another Tansy Hoster Lysa situation? where Jane discovered she was pregnant after Robert already departed, or even after the Red Wedding, and was therefore tricked or was forced into drinking an abortive and then lost the baby. <sighs> that is, that's a tough thought, isn't it? Don't particularly like discussing that one. We would, of course, mourn our chance at another Stark and a son to carry on Rob's legacy, or a daughter. We, I think we'd be happy with either, wouldn't we? That being lost, that's something to mourn, thanks to Sybil's evil machinations, but it's just the sheer horror of this being done to you by someone you are supposed to love and trust. We spoke about that a lot with Lysa and Hoster, and perhaps even in terms of these two when we first introduced them. I can't remember, but I think we have had this discussion before about Sybil. If it was Tansy or something similar, let us at least hope that Jane has not suffered the same damage to her reproductive system that Lysa apparently did. I mean, it's not great as comforts go, but it'd be something, wouldn't it? Because this is just, just poor Jane again. What is it about that name? Hmm. Immediately sensing how traumatic this is for her, Jane is allowed to go, thanks to Jamie. That brief glimpse is actually the last we'll see of her. Well, technically, we'll discuss that later. But like Edmure, we're all pretty convinced that will not remain the case during Winds anyway. Instead, Jamie focuses back on this hateful woman who has the gall to, after selling her, her daughter and helping this slaughter come into being, complain that the benefits she received are not good enough. There should be better rewards for being this level of evil, she's pretty much saying. Rolf Spicer, who you remember as majorly disliked by Greywind and Catelyn, and for good reason, has come out of it well. This is Sybil's brother. He's been given Castamir as a seat. Okay, fairly rubbish seat, given what we are constantly reminded happened to it in terms of uh, in terms of its fate. But a major jump, seeing as House Spicer themselves previously owned no land. They were just tied into House Westling. Sybil just married into them. They were the in-laws staying over, basically. And they should really be pretty happy with that. If you want to look at your maps, the crag, which belongs to the Westerlings, sits on the northwestern coast of the Westerlands, above Castley Rock, kind of east of Fair Isle, below where we're getting into Iron Islands territory. And south of that, on the inland side, is Castamere, or whatever's left of it. So that family now basically commands that little stretch of coast there, with plenty of hills behind them for protection. They've got nothing to worry about from the east. Now the flip side of that is they don't own any of the hills, like uh, I think House Marbrand is quite near them. So they're one of the poorer families of the West because they don't have any mines, or they don't any more anywhere they used to. But still, that is not a bad guess at all, is it? A nice little power block for you there. Just a little one, just a little piece of the kingdom to carve out for yourself. But apparently that's not enough if your name is Sybil, and just because she's called Sybil, I'd like everyone to picture the wife from Faulty Towers now, please. That is a, well, it's not a request, I insist upon it. And Sybil, she insists on being a particularly ugly crow, squabbling over a feast of her own making. And Lord Tywin's shadow rises again, not just in the making sure that Jane did not produce a child, which is classic thinking him, but in promises greater than the ones delivered, a little bit like Mace was complaining of back in the early chapters. Ever ambitious, Sybil wanted matches of lords or heirs for her children, and nothing less to combat that money problem we just mentioned. House Westerling doesn't have a lot to offer in general, which is a large part of why she agreed to do all this in the first place, because they kind of needed to swing for the fences, they didn't have a lot of prospects. Jamie plays the smart game in regards to Jane. She has to wait two years to be wed again. Otherwise, any child produced could at least be argued was actually Rob's. And in matters such as these, an argument is all it takes. No one is going to sit around checking calendars if there is a possibility of an uprising. But Sybil doesn't really seem fussed about Jane, surprise, surprise. She's more interested in her two boys, Rollum and Reynold. Just to remind you, the boys are actually pretty okay in our book. Rollum is the younger, and he was Rob's squire, but wasn't allowed to go to the Red Wedding. 
obviously very key. Reynold is the oldest of Sybil and Garen Westerling's children, and he did go to the twins, probably jog your memory a bit here. Famously among the fandom, and actually to be discussed a little bit later on, Reynold tried to free Greywind when everything started going down with the twins. He was a good friend to Rob, he even carried his banner for him, and when he realised what was going on, apparently clicked that Rob really needed his direwolf. So critically, he had already given up his sword before the fighting began, so his attempt at freeing Greywind was even more brave. And the story that, again, we're going to hear in a little bit, that goes that Reynold was hit by several crossbow bolts and then fell into the river, giving birth to hundreds of theories about him and maybe even Greywind being alive somewhere downstream. George does make a point of his body never being identified, so we've got no way of knowing if that's George just being a really awful tease of all of this, which he does like to do, but I certainly do hope Reynold did escape. That would be a huge fist pump moment if he ever does surface. Greywind or no Greywind. Obviously, we prefer Greywind, but I think that's a lot less likely than Reynard popping up. I would be very happy if he returns. So we actually really like the Westling children and shouldn't hold their mother against them. Now, it is important that Sebul says here that she wouldn't have let Reynard go if she knew the particulars of the Red Wedding. She didn't know that was going to happen. And that's something we discussed at length back in Storm. And knowing whether Reynold is dead or alive, Sybil wants to ensure that he has a betrothal waiting if he does return. A Lannister bride is what she wants. And here we get one of the more odd yet kind of funny misunderstandings. She says this, Your Lord Father said that Reynold should have joy of him if all went as we hoped. Now Jamie, not having his copy of Feast for Crows to hand, doesn't realise that joy is not capitalised. He thinks it's her name, and he thinks that Tywin promised Joy Hill, Jerry and Lannister's daughter, to Reynold. Now, I personally don't think this mistake is actually going to have any implication later on. It doesn't really matter. It just serves more of a purpose here. Firstly, for showing off Sybil as an even worse person, because she gets up to about her son marrying a bastard girl. Because, of course she does, she says this. Lady Sybil looked as if she had swallowed a lemon. You want a Westling to wed a bastard. Again, a reminder that House Westling ain't all that hot. They don't own the mines. They aren't rich. Their castle is crumbling, and in recent years, not only have been reduced to marrying a merchant's daughter instead of any actual nobility, but also got their entire family captured to the enemy, whom they immediately went over to. So the idea of Sybil complaining about this is peak snobbishness, which is a hard word to say, but it's that idea of historical pride that we see from nearly every house in the series. House Westling used to be hot stuff, especially in certain parts of Fire and Blood, and people like Sybil believe that that should really count for something, despite she herself obviously having nothing to do with it, she's just married in, into the family, it's got nothing to do with her. Jamie has no time for thinking on any of this, he does not care who his sons marry, he's busy keeping up his awesome response streak. No more than I want Joy to marry the son of some scheming turncloak bitch, she deserves better. Your daughter is worth ten of you, my lady. Honestly, that last one is one of my favourite Jamie lines of the entire series, just because he's defending Jane. I love it. Sybil, Jane, and the rest of the Westerlings head out for this famous escort of Forley Presters, and we get all these details of Outriders screening the march, and Longbowmen set next to Edmure, and Jamie giving the Edmure to do the same for Jane if she tries to escape. And again, I've discussed this at length in numerous places, and I will say again, just go to Radio Westeros, listen to that live stream. Uh, about the uh, Winds of Winter prologue because that's where I've <laughs> given my thoughts to all this and you could hear Lady Gwen and the Yoke Boy talk about it as well which is even well it's much better than listening to me isn't it suffice to say I really don't think that party is reaching the rock and I really kind of hope that Sybil Spicer ends up on the wrong side of a wolf well I kind of do anyway because Jane's experienced enough horror but I I've left it you just go listen you'll do it there is also this theory I'll mention very quickly that it's not Jane we see leaving. Jamie rides past, he thinks he sees Jane. She's wearing a heavy hood, he doesn't actually see her face. I don't buy that one personally, so I'll move on here. Jamie next heads to the Frey camp to talk to Edwin. 
He wants to discuss this great transfer of prisoners he's ordered, but Edwin gives news of Ryman's killing on the road first. That obviously slips right in with what we saw in Brienne's chapter, but Jamie's main thought is that this isn't one man on an abandoned ruin like Merritt. This is the heir to the twins, almost in sight of the twins as a mere day away, with a force of 16 soldiers around him. So Jamie names this as the outlaws, in this case the Brotherhood, getting bolder. Is Stoneheart bolder than Beric, or is she just more uncaring of the consequences? Is she just wilder? Hmm. Like we've said several times, they definitely are kicking up the effort, aren't they? It's just bigger and bigger consequences. Now, hilariously, Edwin doesn't even stop to think about outlaws. He's convinced it's his brother Black Walder currently over in uh, Seaguard, and we'll call the rivalry between those two. He thinks it's just a measure to climb the ladder to become the new heir. And why would he possibly think his brother could dream up killing their own father as that kind of advancement? It's probably because it's the type of thing he's considered doing more than once. These phrases are as bad as each other. It's just brilliant to see them begin to devour each other in this way. The War of the Five Kings was probably really handy for this family because at least it sets up an outside enemy for once instead of all this inside plotting and murdering. Now they've got no one else to fight so they just turn on each other. We know the truth about Ryman. We know the spy is not Black Walders but Stonehearts in Thomas Sevens but I sure do hope this idea of Edwin's is taken further. Many of us believe that Black Walder will have some significant role yet to play because he's mentioned so often. So these two going at it over a perceived slight and the phrase just thinning out their own ranks, that's an even better form of justice than what Stoneheart is handing out. That is what cheating and being evil gets you. Brilliantly though, Jamie doesn't care. Let them kill each other off. He's here to re-emphasize the giving up of the captives and he doesn't have much interest in paying Walder Frey for them. So boom, that's another prize for what you did. All those valuable captives you got by ill-gotten gains are now taken away with nothing to replace them, specifically because you were so damn horrible. You've sealed your own fate, House Frey. And this is where we actually get the tale of Reynard Westerling, seeing as Jamie is kind enough to ask. We pretty much totally covered it earlier, although we should note Walder Rivers says that Reynard didn't fall into the Green Fork but leapt, so that keeps that spark of hope alive that he took a leaf from the Blackfish's book and managed to escape. Again, here's hoping. Meanwhile, Jamie keeps up his response streak again. First, this is what Edwin says. Once they've spent a few days in the river, they all look much the same. I've heard the same is true of hangmen, said Jamie, before he took his leave. He's not entirely wrong though, is he? For the most part, any fray is worth as little as any other. So the captives are gone, the freys are gone, the river lords are going to leave in a minute. Jamie has the stupid gallows and the siege equipment burnt. We have this real sense of everything winding down, which is fitting for where we are in the book. It's the end of an adventure, although Jamie already tells us of the next phase. He's going to Raventree Hall to deal with what is now truly the last official holdout of Rob Stark. And he intends to repeat his victory here, i.e. no swords. He's not going to do that, he's just going to go and talk and do what he's already done. No, the swords he saves for Illen as they have their final clash. Jamie notes that he has improved from when they began doing this, but that still leaves him a couple of miles short of even being labelled as capable, never mind being good. He still thinks, well, he'd only die twice, so well, that's better than before, I guess. Finding no joy in battle, Jamie sits back and puts Illen to his other use, listening. He's done a good thing, relatively, here. He's gained Riverrun, which is huge for Tommen's reign. He still has Edmure and Jane captive. He's done it all without blood, which almost no one would have wagered on. And he's delivered a big verbal slap to Sybil, that's nice. Other than the Blackfish, it's a victory all over. And in a few pages, he'll actually expand this line of thinking. He'll focus on this directly, but also the overall war wrapping up elsewhere in the realm as well. Stannis is up in the north, no one really cares anymore. Dragonstone and Storm's End, he thinks will soon fall. He obviously hasn't heard the supposed news of Dragonstone. He thinks it's all wrapping up. And he's actually going to be rather content with what he's done, which is a rare feeling for him. A very rare feeling indeed. He has done well. Yet all Jamie can do is think of Cersei, of course. 
both here and in a moment. I suppose after a lifetime of keeping a secret iron tight to your chest, a secret about the most important thing in your life, thing you actually care about, you relish the chance to actually speak it out loud. Even if this is not purely happy memories of their time together, but wanderings on the kettle blacks and other things, still. As Jamie wonders what to do with his lady love, Ilan actually offers some rare participation. He says, well he doesn't say, he mimes, killing her he signals kill her that's good timing of that line of thinking definitely appropriate for a lot of foreshadowing for what we think is going to happen between jamie and cersei interestingly jamie doesn't say no because he loves her and even no because she's his sister he says no because of how much he'll hurt tommen and the power it might give the tyrells so that's quite telling as well isn't it and perhaps that's why ill Payne smiles back to add on to that in those few pages in a moment where jamie basically has the same line of thinking he then focuses on the possibility of being a real father to tommen and whether that would actually be best for Tommen or not, if he was to reveal his parentage. There's no clear answer for that, but it is a big step for Jamie. He's even asking such questions, so I hope he continues to do that. We wouldn't have ever dreamt of him. To, I imagine the end of Storm. There's no way you'd be thinking he's ever going to entertain that kind of possibility. So this is a big step. And now he begins to think of wresting the realm from Cersei's control as well, of putting her aside. If only he'd pursued that a bit harder earlier on. He dreams now of putting a stronger hand in place to help Tommen with that potential transition. Kevin, ideally, or he named several others. Never himself, of course. No, he doesn't like that. But Jamie is not perfect because he also thinks Littlefinger would be a good choice. He has this quote. Littlefinger was as amiable as he was clever, but too lowborn to threaten any of the great lords, with no swords of his own, the perfect hand. Huh, Jamie, come on. This is the same old mistake that everyone makes about Peter Baelish. And can you imagine if he actually did gain that position? My, yeah, my word. No, thank you. The wrapping up feeling continues as we deal with more details of leaving and breaking up camps. Just before that we have Sir Dermot of the Rainwood coming in to report an attack from hundreds of wolves above the Red Fork. The Brotherhood are not the only ones growing in size and aggressiveness. The wolves are now taking on full squads of armed and armoured men. So this just adds to that whole boiling pot idea that this, the Riverlands seems to be part of now. Everything is just coming to a, a head and it provides some more material for those prologue ideas doesn't it? Because well wolves are around. Jamie thinks, could Sir Dermot's direwolf be the same beast that had mauled Joffrey near the crossroads? That's pretty insightful for Jamie, I think. It's not that great of a leap to think that, it's just that I'm more surprised he even remembers it at all. It's not like he was particularly bothered about Joffrey at the time. He was more, well, I think you know what he was up to with Cersei. Regardless, I think we all agree this is definitely Nymeria. Remember, Sir Dermot had been sent in search of the Blackfish across the Red Fort, like I say. So maybe we can even entertain ideas that Nymeria's pack, perhaps with an unknowing helping hand from Aya, prevented his capture by intercepting Sir Dermot here. It's unlikely, but it makes for a cool story. So more leaving and more setup comes now. Some for dance in the Jonas Bracken Titus Blackwood feud, some for winds and beyond, maybe, and Strongbore returning to Darry to hunt the hound or Beric or someone he just wants to chase someone. We know he's not actually finding either of them, but he could still come across Forrest or Lem or someone else wearing the helm. There are just so many live components in this part of the world, you figure that winds is going to be the catalyst and they will soon be smashing into each other. And it's also where we hear of Jamie's plans for Beric to be paraded in King's Landing that we mentioned previously, uh, I think last time out. That's not nice, but it's definitely smart to just prove that Beric's actually died. Jamie really does understand the small folk a bit more now. Next on the checklist is yet another party about to enter the wild, the garrison. And Jamie again marks himself a better man by refusing to put any of them to the question, as Jenna wants. Mainly because he knows the Blackfish and knows it'd be a waste of time, but it's still better than letting Em and Frey decide. Jenna still tries to push him in that Tywin-like decision of going back on his word of not harming them because it would be smarter, but he refuses, so well done, Jamie. So the Tully men are sent off with no weapons or armour, that should be mentioned, and are allowed to go where they will, it seems. 
as always, is something else to consider for the boiling pot. Will they go peacefully into the night? Maybe some of them. Will they become broken men and bandits? Very possible. Will they join the Brotherhood? Join Brynden? Both? We don't know. You've got to figure that at least some of them will return at some point. There's just, there's a lot of things out there to be used by different parties. But we also get some specifics as we take a trip down memory lane to Clash of Kings. As Sir Desmond Grell and Sir Robin Ryger, those who helped run the castle when Edmure and Rob were away, and they had major interactions with Catelyn, and also led the search to recapture Jamie, reappear here. They choose the wall instead of just being let out the door, basically. So they are allowed to take weapons with them, and then they are to be escorted to Maidenpool with 12 of Gregor's men. So now we get some hard wind set up, as Rafford is part of that party, and he obviously gets to Bravos from Maidenpool for his interaction with Aya slash Mercy. Hopefully, he obeyed Jamie's command of being respectful to these two faithful servants. I really don't want to find out he did something nasty to them. Because I do have a soft spot for both Robin and Desmond, these two older codgers who have done their duty for decades and have become part of the fabric of the castle. In Desmond Grell's case, at least, he watched the Tully family grow up in these walls. It's his home, like we mentioned earlier in this in this chapter. It's emotional to have to watch them go. They were not without their faults in their dealings with Catelyn, but they're good men at heart who tried to do the best for Riverrun. So being turfed out like this is harsh going, but probably better for them than watching their beloved Riverrun fall into the hands of the Freys. So they are another two to consider, a smaller party, sure, but I really hope we see them again. Men of their experience and loyalty are sorely needed on the wall, so that'll be good, even if they maybe inherited some of Brynden's John bias, but there's always the chance that they manage to sneak away and will double back to help Brynden retake the place. That would be amazing to see. You'll note that none of the garrison appear to have taken the option to stick around and serve Emmon, as Jamie originally offered. Which seems like a good choice, as Emmon quickly proves himself a damn annoying boss with this three-hour introductory talk. I think we've all been to those kind of meetings before. The rain starts coming down and we can really start to mourn Riverrun now, one of our most beloved castles, certainly for me, and what has become of it. And again, I speak about this a lot in the future section of the Riverlands chapter in my castles book, so I shan't repeat it all here in terms of what I think is going to happen. All I'll say is, there's no way I expect the phrase to own this castle, even by the end of Winds. Yeah, I'll put my marker down. Even by the end of Winds, let alone Dream. I damn look forward to seeing it get taken back. Yes, please. To help that eventually come about, we learn that Thomas Evans, perfectly cast in his role of spy now by his easy nature and forgettability, who easily gets on with Jamie here and gets him talking, he's very good at his job, is finally noticed by Jamie. He will be staying in Riverrun and even gets some advice on how Jenna and Emmon work as a, as a couple. So we know that Stoneheart has at least one man on the inside and we all look forward to seeing how that is going to work to her advantage. He also, crucially, knows that Jamie is leaving. So good job, Tom. You've really found your, your use in this world. Before the chapter closes and before Jamie departs himself, he has a frankly strange and kind of confusing dream. One that I think is often forgotten and not discussed a lot in the fandom. Certainly I'd forgot about it. It ties Jamie's arc back to Feast's beginning as he stands vigil over his father once more and receives a visitor. In the dream, it's not Cersei this time, but the spirit of his mother Joanna. And this is very interesting because of the three Lannister children, Jamie definitely thinks of his mother the least. He seems to be the least affected by her death, or is maybe just the most unaware of such an affliction, whereas Tyrion and Cersei's wounds are far more obvious. So why he dreams of her now and what that means is very difficult to answer, and I don't really have anything to give you here. It's equally difficult to find meaning in what she says. Essentially, she's saying, Jamie is not a knight and Cersei is not a queen, that he is not who he thinks he is. Okay, that part makes sense-ish. Jamie has progressed past being a simple knight. He's a thinker and a leader now, and Cersei is definitely no true queen, and won't be in any sense of the word soon enough. 
but there's also this business of him only having one hand in the dream when he's always had two previously. So what the hell does that mean? Is this a, a quaif type deal and it really isn't a dream at all? Is someone projecting, messaging Jamie here? Is this a glass candle situation for all we know? But then who is masquerading as Joanna? Or do I really want to jump off the boat and say her spirit is still lingering somewhere or something like that? Well, personally, I like to stay a bit closer to base and say that perhaps it is just a sign he is becoming more at peace with his injury and who he's becoming, who he's turning into. Still, it is a weird one that definitely confuses me, so let me know what you think. Maybe it's just George getting us to think about family before this final page or two. Upon his waking, there is snow falling upon River Run. It's the sign of things to come, the real connection between this and the winds of winter. And Jamie realises it, for the omen it is. This is a big deal. Time has passed, winter has come south, and the situation is dire. We really are about to move into the final stages, and the realm is not ready. Let me read you this quote. Winter is marching south, and half our granaries are empty. Any crops still in the fields were doomed. There would be no more plantings, no more hopes of one last harvest. He found himself wondering what his father would do to feed the realm, before he remembered that Tywin Lannister was dead. So as well as saying the obvious tone for, for winds in this kind of doom and gloom scenario, which would be bad enough if we didn't have like a dozen different parties all swirling around in the wild out there ready to kill each other, I think this is also Jamie realising, hang on, it's me, I'm kind of in charge here, I need to figure out how to feed the realm, because probably no one else is going to bother. And I think we all know, yeah, battles and magic, they're all cool, but starvation and lack of food is going to be a major part of winds not just in the riverlands but i think that's probably going to be the worst hit area because it normally is and uh yeah that is going to be a big part of things now this is immediately followed up by a very stark contrast to that atmosphere because outside the ankle deep snow is enjoyed by the children of the castle there's laughing and throwing of snowballs and such it's kind of it's probably a top five wholesome moment honestly we don't see things like that very much do we and it's of jamie's creation i think we need to highlight that very, very easily, this snow could have been landing on hundreds upon hundreds of corpses strewn over the walls of Riverrun, with children doing anything but laughing. We don't give Jamie enough credit for that. He managed this peacefully. And even with everyone happy, unfortunately, Jamie deals as a heartbreaker. There was a time, not long ago, when he might have been out making snowballs of the best of them, to fling at Tyrion when he waddled by, or slip down the back of Cersei's gown. You need two hands to make a decent snowball though. That time and that Jamie are gone. He has found a new purpose now and I really would like to see him continue to grow into a person who is going to save a lot of lives when true winter comes thanks to his mind instead of his sword. Now quick note before we move on about this snow. Obviously in winter the Riverlands does not normally see anything close to what the North does but this isn't a normal winter is it? I think we agree. So let's just say the Riverlands does even become a pale shade of what we're going to see of the north in dance, you know, the snowstorms, the real bad snow, the real bad winter. That has a major, major effect on all those hundreds of people floating around the Riverlands right now that I keep mentioning. You simply aren't going to be able to do that. You can't live out in the wild in that kind of thing. Just ask Dennis. Especially as southerners with no experience in that type of weather. Let's just focus on the Brotherhood for a moment. A northern winter will completely disable their normal way of doing things. It just won't be possible to move around like they normally do and see the people they normally do and forage the way they normally do. It's just not going to happen. They're going to starve. They're going to freeze. I'm not even sure they'll be able to remain inside the Hollow Hill if that is their kind of main base. So are they going to actually have to take a castle to survive? Will this put a rush on certain assaults before it gets really bad? And just how many of these parties and people are going to die frozen in the wild? And by the by, just again, while we're talking about snow... The idea that the Free Forks, the Free Rivers, or perhaps even the Trident could freeze is a wildly exciting image to me. I would really like to see that. That'd be so cool. Unless you had to be sat in Riverrun, of course, that kind of 
negates everyone's advantages, doesn't it? Okay, we have one point left for this chapter, and it's the one we all know is coming. There is one more old name we haven't seen just yet, until now. Maester Vyman appears at Jamie's door, I'm sure you remember him, and he brings some pretty important news. Now, we already know what this letter says, and soon enough, so does Jamie. And what I love about this ending is George doesn't give us some long paragraph of mental deliberation. We don't get any italics at all, actually. We just get the result. A snowflake landed on the letter. As it melted, the ink began to blur. Jamie rolled up the parchment again, as tight as one hand would allow, and handed it to Peck. No, he said. Put this in the fire. Okay, it is very hard to contain my excitement about this ending. Fucking yes. We've already had so many instances of Jamie choosing to leave Cersei behind and separate from her, and I love them all, but this is something else. This is his beloved sister actually admitting she needs him, that she loves him, begging him to come to her. Jamie's entire life has been ruled by coming to her, by giving whatever she wants. That's how he got into the situation. You all know the story of the Kingsguard and all that kind of crap. He's had an abusive relationship with her since their teens, really, or before maybe. Now, finally, after everything in this book, he's had enough. Everything that Cersei has done has finally paid off. The hurled goblets, the jokes by his hand, the aggressiveness, the sending him away, the slaps, the mismanagement of their son, their legacy, and the realm, the cheating on him. She betrayed Jamie. she lied, she broke his heart, and it pays off. He says no. I believe the snowflake might play a part as well, reminding him he has bigger duties now, duties that Cersei has shunned long ago, but I think the decision is made even before that. Ever since getting back to King's Landing, which he went through hell to do merely to get back to Cersei, Jamie has been growing and growing, and the biggest flame of that change is realising what Cersei truly is to him and to the world. He's far from perfect, fine, but he has also realised he's much, much better than her, and it's much better for everyone else if he's away from her as well, and he's not going to let her ruin him anymore. And it's a double whammy, because at this moment, we believe this to mean Cersei is absolutely screwed if Jamie's not going to save her, so she's getting what she truly deserves. Hooray. Yes, hooray. I cannot overstate how absolutely brilliant this is as a moment for Jamie and the series as a whole. And really, damn, what an arc. This arc of Jamie's in A Feast of Crows. I mean, I really do struggle because I love Brienne's, but Jamie's as well. I don't know what I would pick as my arc of this book. I really do not. I love this Jamie arc. It is brilliant. I love this one chapter, but there's a lot of good ones, especially once he gets out of King's Landing. I just love him away from Cersei. His growth as leader, again, once he's back out on the road and he's lead, he's got a group of men to lead, he's got actual change to effect out in the world, he's just back at his best. He says it himself, He's this is what he's meant to do. He's comfortable out in an army and out on the road and in the camp and whatever else. This is what he knows how to do. And he did really well. He's the, I mean, there's not many success stories in this book, is there? But Jamie is one of them. Yeah, okay, I'm not saying he's 100% perfect. And certainly the way he threatens Edmure, definitely not perfect, but does save a lot of lives you can't deny so yeah i mean this arc i don't know what to say about it. i know i'm babbling but this arc man yeah it's right up there i'll tell you that <sighs> well how annoying we only have one jamie chapter in dance what a letdown great chapter but still i want a lot more and well we'll talk about that when we get to it we are gonna have to wait quite a while i think i mentioned something like in the 40s in terms of dance chapters before we talk to him that's again so we're gonna have to wait but well george gives us a good send-off here doesn't he i'll think of like 10 more things to say in a minute when i stop recording when i move on to sam but yeah what an arc as i think you can tell this is running quite long already so let's go straight into our final chapter of the day final chapter of a feast for prose with sam five if we want to accuse feast of being a book full of travel chapters 
which I think you can tell through our reread here is actually completely false. It is fitting we at least finish with the ending of a journey and the man who has been on the longest trip in the whole book. Look, it's even got the word voyage in the first line. But before we get to that, what are we actually looking at overall here? Sam 5 has a hard job. Any one of those three previous chapters we've just discussed could have been placed as the final chapter of this book and they complement each other perfectly. That last Jamie outing would have been really well placed for capping them all off and he and Brienne are much more closely tied to the themes of the book, while Cersei has been present on more pages than anyone. So Sam is going to have to come up with something pretty big to justify his being here in this spot. What he provides is a lot of tension on the southern coast, of Euron and what's going to come in winds and beyond, but then he ties the book together completely as we finally return to Old Town and the Citadel to explore what the hell is going down there. As we said at the time, no book in this series has such a strong connection between its first and last chapter, and especially between the ending lines of both of those chapters. So it is really something special as we revisit something fairly absent from the book, the potential of magic. But mainly it's just George making us ask about a thousand questions at once. Well, always leave them wanting more, and George certainly accomplishes that. We also, like we say, get the end of Sam's journey, all the way from pretty cosy in his library, pretty happy, everything that's happened between, a lot of storms he's had to weather to come through now and take this whole new chapter of his life on this whole new challenge which he finds out is not going to be easy if he ever thought it was but we'll discuss a little bit more of that in the end let's get down into this chapter because like i say we're running long sam and the cinnamon wind have moved on from good times celebrating aemon and having positive conversations about atlas and life to sailing straight into danger instead the ironborn have made considerable advancements in their harrying of the southern coast or the southwestern coast so much so they're even being reported of over in tyrosh it's not mere reaving either no that's too much to hope for they have at least been persuaded to keep up the actual taking of places places with cool names so they might completely control the shipping lanes and allow for even bigger assaults on other places which is certainly fitting for our theories of the future that Euron is planning. You remember back in Victarion's last chapter, the Ironborn were getting antsy. They didn't really like these the taking of places. They wanted to keep up their reaving, go home, do what they normally do. Unfortunately, it seems that Euron has been successful in pushing them more towards uh, a war-focused outlook, a more permanent type of destruction. And it seems like they're doing pretty well at it. We're going to learn more the closer we get to Old Town, but even on this first page, consider what their presence really means crisscrossing across the Redwine Straits here. It disallows the forming of proper defences. It stops food supply coming from the arbor or in and out of Old Town. And that is majorly going to affect the national economics and basically invite more chaos, which we know Euron wants. The more the entire country is destabilised, the more he can invite horror onto the sage later. Now remember, the Redwine fleet is headed back down south, so he might have even suspected Sam was going to run into them, but it seems he just had a big enough head start having reached the bottom of the western coast, whereas Pax the Red Rhine is probably closer to the Dornish Corner on the eastern side. But what about Marwyn and the Cinnamon Wind on their return journey? Will they see the Red Wines? Will they cause any trouble? We'll have to wait and see. Coming through the danger, Kojimo proved herself awesome again on multiple fronts. She's been keeping them safe with her archers, and Sam even gets to join in once or twice. So I really hope this isn't the last we see of her. We got a bit more Kojimo in Sam 4, and unfortunately not enough in Sam 5. We move pretty quickly along this first part. Gilly spies three towers of House Castane on the coast, which shows us exactly how close they are now if you wish to check your maps. They're turning the corner off from the sea into the Whispering Sound, which is basically Old Town's driveway. So that's good, the journey is ending. The danger of drowning that was once so present back in Sam 2 
is nearly finished. Huh. Funnily enough, Sam barely mentions that anymore. Do you remember how frightened he was of drowning and how much he linked that back to Randall, etc.? Doesn't think about it anymore. He seems to pretty much got his sea legs. He can get to a fulfilling Eamon's final wishes. That's going to be good for him as well. But it's not a happy time not to leave because Sam's come to like it aboard the Cinnamon Wind. I don't blame him. It sounds great. But we all know the main reason is because he doesn't want to leave his beloved Gilly. And as for Gilly herself, she's smiling. She loves the Cinnamon Wind as well. Again, who wouldn't? For her, it's the friendship of Kojimo, being able to be with Sam. But most importantly, she's found at least some level of comfort with Mance and Dada's child. It's the quote. She has come to love this one as much as the one she left behind, Sam realised. Now I'm not sure that can ever really be true, and the hurt definitely isn't ever going away, but we'll take it as a huge plus in general for her. We have to appreciate she's found the capacity to still love when it really could have gone the other way, though all that really just adds to the melancholy of her losing Sam soon enough. There'll be more of Gilly later, but for now, we get more details of the horrors left behind by the Ironborn as corpses start appearing in the water. It's so very rare in these series that we get a break from corpses in the water, and it seems like that little break's at an end. Even the feasting crows have made it out here. Given that we've seen them firsthand at the Shield Islands, we know how bad this is. The effects are wide-ranging. Bodies in the water, but now they're ships as well. And not little ones. Warships. This is no joke from the Ironborn. They're not messing around. Like we said, Euron's got them working. Sam and the others see bunches of burned villages and fields down on the coast. Now, the villages is bad enough because, again, we know what they've just experienced. We know what the Ironborn do to them. But let's consider the chapter sequence in here. Riverrun is pretty far north, true. But the snows are still coming. Half of the realm is going to be foodless. And now we have people going around and burning fields and crops out of cruelty and nothing more. It doesn't gain them anything. You are dooming more people than you know. But then again, that's very much Euron's point, isn't it? Battle here, said Zondo. Not so long. Who would be so mad as to raid this close to Old Town? Sam just can't get his head around this idea. Having grown up in the Reach, this is just not something you can imagine. It plays into the idea we discussed a while back of all the status quos all crumbling throughout the series. Old Town is just there. It always has. People don't attack it. Not recently. And this gets doubled down on as the cinnamon wind sails through the mists and meets Huntress, a Hightower ship, who, after a little bit of greeting tension, gives us more explanation on how these are no mere reavings and how far this has gone towards Old Town. The Ironborn have even resorted to playing dress-up and trying to trick their way in, which is definitely not a usual Ironborn strategy. The Huntress's captain tells us that it's hundreds of ships still plaguing them, and the only positive seems that they haven't taken the Arbor in total, but really... That feels like it's a matter of time and that Euron is going to get there at some point. Only Paxter Redwine can apparently offer help. Sam's response to this is to call out the High Towers. They are the rulers of Old Town, even if we've heard next to nothing of them in this series. But surely we aren't going to get a much bigger version of Salt Pans here, are we? With Lords sitting in their towers, the smoke rises up to join them. So this is where we finally learn some details on the High Towers, who, as I say, we've basically heard nothing of. And given their very high importance historically, especially in Fire and Blood, you'd think they are going to be of importance going forward, wouldn't you? What we get actually is, very quickly, a list of names. We hear of Leighton, the Lord, who was at least mentioned back in the prologue. Apparently, he still sits atop the high tower with his books. Considering Old Town and the Citadel seems to be our big representation of hidden magic, you got to guess he will show up at some point down the road and be important certainly the magic vibes are going to come back at the end of the chapter so maybe he'll be bringing those in a future book we also get a bunch more names there is Baylor, yet another one this time he's the firstborn and heir to the high tower he is actually bothering to get stuff done and is trying to build ships and protect the city that will be his even when his father won't 
His younger brother Gunthor, the eighth-born, Leighton has ten children, making it even more surprising we've really only ever heard of one. He's doing his part by running the harbour defences. We'll see him a bit later on. Garth Hightower is the third-born. He's recruiting men even if they have no ships yet. And the youngest son, Humphrey, has gone to Lease to appeal to the one Hightower we do know anything about, Lynesse, ex-wife of Jor Mormont. Apparently, she's still got it going over in Lease and is rich enough to field a whole fleet. That'll be interesting to see if she does offer help to her forgotten family, and if Jorah or someone similar is going to run into her on the return to Westeros from Danny's camp. It's a great connection all the way back to the old days of Danny and Jorah chatting away, but the takeaway is that the Hightower kids seem to be putting the work in while Dad is not. Is that because Leighton is maybe a bit of a, a diver and they basically just want to keep him out of the way? Or is Leighton generally onto something here with whatever he's been reading atop the Hightower? We've no idea, but we know what we'd all prefer. Another quick word on the Hightowers, as mentioned here, they are apparently as wealthy as the Lannisters. Now, is that just bias from people in the Reach, or is that really true? We've definitely never heard any Lannisters saying such. It would make them very powerful, wouldn't it, if that is true? This captain from the Huntress, he isn't pissed at the Hightowers, but he is at Cersei for denying them the proper defence. This all wouldn't be an issue if the Red Wines were allowed to do what they are supposed to do. Interestingly, he seems to think the Red Wine fleet has not been released yet, so it's possible none of them know that Paxter is actually on his way. Sam gets what's up even if many don't. If King's Landing loses Old Town and the Arbor, the whole realm will fall to pieces. Everything is connected in these seven kingdoms. This part of the world is really, really valuable to the crown. Remember when they saved your city and basically won you the war? And it really highlights just what Cersei was willing to play with just to piss Marjorie off in holding back the Red Wines. The destruction she's wrought. Add that to the list. All this news makes Sam second-guess the plan to send Gilly to Horn here. Sure, that is pretty far inland, and the iron bomb power is all at sea, but Sam makes a great point that that's exactly what Winterfell once thought as well. Besides, we've had plenty of examples since of what broken men and such can do, so it's a worthy worry, especially if Old Town is essentially destroyed, as some believe. Plus, most of the land-based reach strength is still up in the Stormlands and Crownlands, including Randall, so they aren't at full defence at all. The idea of losing Gilly is tough enough. The idea of losing her to constant danger, which she could have just stayed at the wall for, no, that's not one Sam can accept. It would always have been incredibly hard to leave her, even if she didn't come with him on this voyage. But it's obviously much harder now, given what they've been up to. Is this or the dessert, though? And Sam can never bring himself to become an Evdarian. Not after the promises he made to John, whatever he's fought with him through the book. And definitely not after Aemon gave him this final charge of getting his message to the right people. So, is it keep Gideon Old Town, send her back on the cinnamon wind, or Horn Hill? And in the end, he does decide Horn Hill is still the safest option. But I suspect the freedom to make that choice is not going to last all that long anyway. Finally, we return to Old Town. It's cold, it's damp, there's a boom across the harbour. It's already quite a different mood to when we left it. Back in the good old days, we could just sit with your cider and talk about stuff with your friends. Now, this is a city prepping for war, as we can see with the high number of warships. Old Town may go down especially if Euron is going to do some kind of kraken raising or anything of the sort. But these people look like they will give their lives to defend it. The cinnamon wind is inspected again, this time by Gunthor Hightower. We learn he spent a few years at the Citadel, and now he goes for a private chat with Captain Cahorma Mo. Is Gunthor in league with Marmin, perhaps? Is he securing him the voyage back east? Hmm, maybe. In the meantime, Sam finally sets foot back on solid ground. He's got it all planned in his head. Do what he came to do in terms of dropping off John and Eamon's messages, then back to Gilly and onto Horn Hill. Yeah, I'm sure that will go smoothly, all plans do. Koja Mo, in her last appearance, says that they'll be in port for a few days and that Gilly can wait here. In fact, she's welcome any time. Well, I'm sure that will go smoothly too. 
So unfortunately for us, it's goodbye for Kojimo and the Simmer Wind and everyone on it. And she's one of the coolest small-time characters. I'm hoping she at least will return, even if all of them don't, because they're a great bunch. But for us, we're in Old Town proper, and we're on home turf for Sam the Reachman. And this is a first for him. Despite the multiple different places we've seen him in now, often looking after himself, this is the first time we've seen him somewhere he actually knows of. He's seen the Citadel, he knows the vague way to go, even if it has been a while. That's already more empowering than many situations we've seen him in. Here's a quote. The day was damp, so the cobblestones were wet and slippery underfoot. The alleys shrouded in mist and mystery. Sam avoided them as best he could. So again, it's not the cool scene we saw in the prologue, but there is a direct link back to that time. Sam's unknowingly being quite smart here. Last time someone slipped on those cobbles, he was being tricked by the alchemist. And mystery is quite the word for what happens down those alleys. Stick to your instincts, Sam. Stay by the river. Even if you didn't agree with the canal in Bravos, it's better than what happened to Darien in an alley. While it's familiar in a historical sense, it's also not. Sam has spent the majority of this book aboard a ship, and has had his longest journey aboard the Simon Wind. It's pretty startling to go from that to this. And if it wasn't for his stint in Bravos being in a city, it would be just as weird seeing him here as he's always been either in the wild or a fairly quiet Castle Black for the last few books. That unfamiliarity manifests in paranoia. He feels eyes and doors and windows. He feels like he's being watched. Except we know he's actually pretty dead on. It's just not doors and windows he's being watched from. To mix well with that uncomfortableness is that while he is in a place he knows and finally on home soil, it also means he's a lot closer to the memories of his father. He never really escapes them anywhere, but they are more imprinted here people will actually know Randall. Sam has experienced him in this very city. He's been with him here. So it's lucky he's actually nowhere near at the moment or Sam would probably be taking this all much worse. We quickly come to the Citadel itself with a far clearer look than the memories and thoughts of Pate. On their front door is a pair of sphinxes, one of a man's face and one of woman's, which would make a lot more sense if women were also allowed to become maesters here. So is this the riddle that Eamon was referring to? Was he saying that the Citadel is a mystery to be solved instead of the educators' question answers they should be? Well, it fits. I can certainly buy that more than some other ideas. Naturally, when most people hear of the Sphinx Fiddle, they think of Alaris slash Sorella, and they think Eamon was linking to that. Sam certainly does in a moment when he meets Alaris and Sphinx gets brought up, but I personally believe that's a misdirection. Eamon would have no way to know of Sorella, and seemingly no reason to care as far as we know. I've heard it argued that Marwyn was sending messages to Eamon via the glass candle because he knew he didn't have long left and was aware that he was coming to Old Town. Nah, I'm not a big fan of that either. It's a slippery road to go down. Even if it fits more here, we can start making that argument about anyone in the series. We can always just say, oh yeah, he, someone was talking to him through a glass candle. I don't like that personally. I will say the Sphinx Riddle and what Eamon was talking about seems to be one of the more divisive mysteries still out there at the moment. There are people still insisting that it is Hilarious, some who think it is uh, directed at identifying the heads of the dragon and is a way to support it being Tyrion, Jon and Danny. Now I agree, I think it is to do with Targaryens because that's what Aemon was focused on at the time and he was thinking about Daenerys and he even brought up the three heads at one point. But specifically naming those three, uh, that's a bit far for me. I believe it's one of those instances where fans get a little bit carried away and go a bit too deep on such things. Unless Eamon really knows some key information about Tyrion that we don't, and I certainly hope that's not true, he's got no reason to be thinking about him. But as I say, I think some people look too hard to make certain ideas fit, but I do support the idea there is to do with Targaryens and not Alaris. What I find interesting is that throughout the series, there's always pairs of sphinxes being mentioned, as we have here at the Citadel Door. I believe there's only one mention of a, a single sphinx statue, and it's by Tyrion in Dance, so I don't know, make of that what you will. Symbolically, I think it probably will have to do with who the heads are, and maybe it will look at Tyrion and other things, 
that these theories mention because George is good at linking these together, but I'm far more interested in what Eamon meant himself when he was talking. But it's a mystery to me, and you've got to have a few mysteries, haven't you? Within, Sam goes on a little tour of some key parts of the Citadel, dreaming slightly of how his life would have been if he'd just come here as a child, because it really does seem right up his alley. He then comes to the Seneschal's court, where he basically has to sign up and deliver his messages, and unfortunately for Sam, he immediately shows he has no idea on how things actually work within the Citadel, in terms of needing to bribe to get himself an appointment. He still believes in the general image that they put out, and besides, he doesn't like to make trouble, so he does what he's told and waits on a bench. He waits all day until he finally dozes off and is woken by Alaris slash Sorella. So this is where Sam gets that little jolt and repeats Eamon's jumble. But Alaris has no clue what it means either. We get a quick explanation on what Sam doesn't know about the switching of pennies and who hates novices and who doesn't etc. As well as some background on how certain offices are filled. But what's obviously really striking is that Alaris knows of Maester Eamon. Even when Eamon was so sure he had been forgotten and the fact he'd probably been gone from the Citadel for about 50 or 60 years before Sorella was even born. You get the feeling this Eamon knowledge is not common at the Citadel, especially amongst the young, so it highlights Sorella as someone special and wise, and maybe hints that Marwyn has been teaching what's really important. Buoyed by her interest, Sam ends up doing a bit of a Brienne with the elder brother, and just spills his old story, right from the Fist of the First Men, to becoming a Slayer, to the Battle for the Wall, to Stannis, to the Journey South, to Daenerys, to everything really. And it's all very clearly important stuff, that the Citadel needs to know. Alaris does not laugh or brush it all off, which we'll have to be thankful for, because that would obviously wound Sam to a great degree after he's poured his heart out. Instead, she declares they must go and tell someone, someone who will actually know what to do. Sam agrees, likely thinking how lucky it is that out of everyone in this place, he's bumped into the one person who'd listen. Of course, we know how much this is actually pre-planned. And before the pair head off, let's just discuss something quite annoying very quickly here. Considering the sheer age of both the Citadel and the Night's Watch, you would think they might have bothered to establish a line of communication slash interest slightly stronger than the uh, we'll send you a maester whenever one dies, otherwise we don't really need to talk. Perhaps that did exist at some point in the past, but it doesn't seem to have. Yes, there are other ends of the world, so they won't need to interact on that level a lot, but at some point in history, you would have thought they'd recognise each other's importance to their respective tasks. The Night's Watch could deliver heaps of information on winter and the wildlings and these largely unmapped areas above the wall. The Citadel is supposed to want to know everything, so why not keep up that exchange? You would even think that at some point they would have clicked that even as kingdoms and dynasties rise and fall, they are the two constants throughout history, so why not team up a little bit, just talk? But if they ever did, they've certainly let that slide, hence the situation today. Alaris leads Sam off to this other Archmaester, who will apparently be much more help. Their destination is the Isle of Ravens, with the Ravenry being the oldest part of this ancient place. So that's already a hint we're going somewhere important. We link ravens with the occult and magical, and the oldest place is always the one of the best secrets. And there's a weirwood on the way. And damn, isn't that one going to be useful for Bran at some point? One covered in ravens, just as Sam has seen before. So the symbology is getting pretty thick here. Sam is one of the most exposed characters to the magical side of things, with the Others and the Whites and the Horny Stillones and the Black Gate as well. This book has been about getting away from all that, but now he's walking right back into it. How cool would it have been to see Eamon visit this place? Uh, yeah, we can unless alarms, I think. After being corrected about their seeing Master Walgrave, we take another step into prologue territory as we are reintroduced to Leo Tyrell, who has not learned any manners in the duration of this book, unfortunately. Except it's worse this time because Sam actually knows him from his youth. As if that wasn't enough to send him back to his more trying times, Leo tells us his father told everyone he was dead. Well, not exactly a surprise, but definitely a brutal thing for a son to hear. But I think that's what actually instills a little bit of stoniness in Sam's reply. Are you still a craven? No, Sam lied. John had made it a command. 
I went beyond the wall and fought in battles. They call me Sam the Slayer. He did not know why he said it. The words just tumbled out. Yeah, Randall didn't even have the decency to tell people Sam had gone to the wall. To him, all these brave and brilliant things that Sam has done don't exist in his home realm. If Randall's not going to do it, then fine, Sam will tell of his life himself, and good for him. But that line of thinking is stopped when someone else enters the room, and we finally meet Marwyn, the man first mentioned by Miriam Asdur so long ago, then a couple of times by Kyburn, and he's spoken of in the prologue as something of an enigma here in the Citadel, but really we've had no reason to ever think we'd meet him or that he would be important. Well, considering we only get him for about three pages here, he not only makes a hell of an impact, but I think almost every reader will go away thinking this person is going to be very, very important for the future. The future of the whole world, really, because it's hard to speak in any lesser terms than that while discussing Daenerys Targaryen. The Marin ride is short, but it's damn fun. Like we heard about in the prologue, the first thing Sam focuses on is how unmaester-like this guy is. In fact, he looks pretty much the opposite, and his actions appear to be the same, as he grabs Sam and all but throws him into his chambers of maps and scrolls and books and other wonders. Okay, this is the wizard's room we've always dreamt of, with no respect to Maester Lewin's tidy tower back in Winterfell. I suppose Leighton Hightower must have a similar style going on across the city, but maps and scrolls are only so interesting, even to Sam, compared to what's in the middle of the room. A glass candle. A lit glass candle. Okay, here we go. Stretching out our minds again all the way back to the prologue, we begin to remember what this could mean. In fact, in terms of mentions, it follows a similar line to Marwyn himself. The glass candles were first mentioned also in a Daenerys POV back in Clash of Kings. Then we had to wait for the feast prologue to get our real information, the legends of what could be done with them, the fact that four apparently reside here, three black and one green. This one is black, still leaving us to wonder if the green is any different. And the fact that the Citadel has made one of its fundamental parts about these glass candles. It's wrapped entire mystiques and lessons around their craft into them and the fact that they do not light. Until now. Imagine how many maesters would have their minds ripped apart by such knowledge. Imagine Maester Lewin, who dreamed of such wonders as a young Bran once did, only to have that taken out of him by the Citadel, perhaps by that very test. How would he react to seeing a lit candle now? We should not forget that Leo Tyrell told us as much back in the prologue. He said that's a candle burning in the Major's chambers, meaning Marwyn. But he came off as Billy Bullshit, so he didn't take much notice. Now we know he's not only telling the truth, he's directly involved, along with Alaris slash Sorella. So those questions we had back in the prologue about whether they were already working together back then, or whether Leo was supposed to be spilling certain secrets, if one of them recruited the other, they all swirl back together. And we don't really get any answers here, but it's really hard to care when there is actually a burning candle in front of us especially when sam is drawn to it straight away let's give the quote let's give the description the candle was unpleasantly bright there was something queer about it the flame did not flicker even when archmaster marwyn closed the door so hard that papers blew off a nearby table the light did something strange to colors too whites were bright as fresh fallen snow yellow shone like gold reds turned to flame but the shadows were so black they looked like holes in the world sam found himself staring the candle itself was three feet tall and slender as a sword, ridged and twisted, glittering black. Is that obsidian? As if the description wasn't enough to, for us to moon over, now we have confirmation of its source. We know we're in important territory. And so does Sam. He has first-hand knowledge of the importance of dragonglass as well as the rarity. So our minds really get going on subjects like, are there a bunch of these on Dragonstone? Can we make more? Marwyn goes a bit further with making them sound cool. Here's another quote. What feeds the flame? asked Sam. What feeds a dragon's fire? Marwyn seated himself upon a stool. All Valerian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas and deserts with one of these glass candles. 
They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions, and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. So, they are magical, and first off, in the same way that dragons are, pretty important. They are likely linked to Danny's rebirth on the Dothraki Sea, in that she allowed dragons to come back, and as we've heard through the world, there's numerous examples of fire-based magic having increased ever since, with the wildfire and visions, etc. But what about what they can actually do? I know I spoke about this at length during the prologue, but just consider, again, very quickly, how much of an actual game-changer this is. Even if the only power they possessed was allowing communication to any point in the world, where another one resided, in this world, that's nearly as big an advancement as the wheel. Certainly for our purposes, anyway. As I said previously, in a story where we still have moving parts, whole continents away from each other, that need to find some kind of unity to eventually fight the overall fight, and for George, in terms of just making his stories move a bit faster, glass candles are surely going to be huge in engineering some of that. Whether it's coordinating Danny's invasion, or getting people to the wall, or whatever. We could use these to show people the, wall, the truth of what's happening. That Danny didn't really burn down King's Landing, any number of things. And what's this of entering people's dreams? Quaif much? Heck, even the Jamie Joanna dream fits the bill in my book. Point being, again, these things are huge game changers. Perhaps as important as getting Valerian steel swords up north. Seriously, this is critical to the series' end, and I'm sure of it. And I'm sure they have powers we don't even know of yet. They're going to have uses we can't even imagine. But just even in that communication aspect, these are huge. It's not all swords and battles. George knows that. This is about the political gathering of people, the unity of civilization. I think these will play a part. And Marwyn, he proves their use immediately because he already knows what Sam said to Lyris. So you can apparently watch any conversation. What can you do with these things? They seem like the opposite to Bran's power. We've got one up north, now here's one down south. Perhaps these can look into history as well. Maybe not, but you can see their value. We can just go and check up on anyone like some magic mirror. Surely there must be limits that we shall learn of, but still, the mind just boggles at the possibilities. Okay, glass candle, show me Benjen. There you go, that kind of thing. How much different... <laughs> I get too excited. You might be the same. But Marwin wants to know everything 100%, so Sam goes through the whole story again, not just in front of Alaris, but this other as-yet-unnamed novice, who we'll definitely be coming back to in a moment. For prophecy, Marwin has no time. He's my kind of guy. But there's just too much to ignore. And interestingly, it's Alaris bringing up Eamon that spurs him into action. But not before informing Sam of the true nature of maesters, that this place is as dangerous as any other, that they will kill in order to keep the rise of magic down. And though it's something we speak about often now, and even as fact sometimes, this revelation really does shift our entire view of the history of this world. Who do you think killed all the dragons last time around? Gallant dragon slayers armed with swords? He spat. The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall, when by rights he should have been raised to Archmaester. His blood was why. He could not be trusted. Ooh, okay. We struggled enough getting our heads around the faceless men having to do something with the Doom. Now the suggestion of the Maesters being involved. With the Doom, or with the dying of the dragons here on Westerosi soil a lot later. Who knows? It's conspiracy, it's secrets, it's Aemon being purposely sent away, or being allowed to leave, depending on your viewpoint. It's the idea that this constant presence we've had throughout the books have collectively been up to something nefarious, or were in the past, at least. Is that why we've had so many mentioned in this book? Is that why we had the prologue set where it was? To build them up and up without us even knowing just to drop the bomber here at the end? How many are in on it? A handful? The majority? How many can we trust out there in the world? And most importantly, what does this mean for Daenerys and her beloved dragons? It's another danger for the four of them. 
or if we believe they're the key to saving the world, it's a danger to everyone. Now, quick pause here and take a quick caveat. Because like I say, George has really focused on maesters in this book and it might have been this really very clever, subtle building for us, like we say. Now, I've been promising the whole time through that at some point I will actually go through and see how many named maesters we get in this book compared to others. And as it's the last episode of the Feast and Crows, I actually did it. So here, very quickly, is the list of every named maester we get in this book. Or, well, according to my search anyway, I might miss a few, but here we go. In the Feast for Crows, we hear about Maester or Archmaester, Gorman, Marwyn, Walgrave, Cresson, Benedict, Valen, Ebrose, Periston, Ryan, Rigney, Murnmuir, Kelliot, Miles, Pycelle, Balabar, Franking, Eamon, Fomax, Mullin, Harmune, Lewin, Coleman, Wendermere, Deniston, Hereg, Caelan, Joseran, Heliweg, Gullion, Ottomore, Kedri, Vyman, Veerbold, and Norrin. And that's without uh, including the unnamed Duskendale maester that Brienne talks to at some length in Brienne 2, I think. Don't actually ever get his name, so I'm not counting him. Now, before I actually get the number, you might have been able to count along there. I'll tell you about the other books, because yes, I tend that for the four other books as well. That's how much you're getting with here, here on the aisle. In Game of Thrones, we got eight different named maesters. In A Clash of Kings, there were 12. In The Storm of Swords, 18. In The Dance of Dragons, 15. In a Feast of Crows, 34. And consider that's the shortest book, 34 named maesters. So really very much included here in the feast. So I just wanted to make that emphasis for you there. Yeah, I'll go the extra mile for you guys. Now Marwyn, he tells Sam all this, to beware the maesters and play their game. Keep a straight face, keep up the lies, basically. The ones Sam so wanted to leave behind. You're part of the Marwyn gang now. You can even help tend the ravens, just as you once did before. That's all Sam gets, because Marwyn is already off. He might not like prophecy, but he seems to really like Aemon. So he will go to Daenerys in Aemon's place, aboard the Cinnamon Wind, no less. Interestingly, something which doesn't get mentioned often, Marwyn believes the Citadel will also send someone official to Daenerys. So will that be someone we know or have heard of, perhaps? How will that go down when they are both a marine in front of her? How, how will Marwyn go down a marine at all? We know he's been that far east before, but how is he going to affect not just the city, but Daenerys' campaign should she actually return to Westeros. We can't even dive into that pool because the possibilities are just too numerous, but damn if it isn't exciting. And just like that, Marwyn walks out of our lives and onto the cinnamon wind, exciting all those questions we previously asked as like, if he'd already knew Kohorimo who'd been watching him. Does he take Aemon's body with him? Those books they wanted to sell? What about Gilly? You'd have to assume she does get off or it means major heartbreak for Sam, but can you imagine if she didn't? If Gilly ends up in Marine, I don't even know how to describe the vastness of the journey she's undergone in terms of different parts of the world. It really is something. Meanwhile, Alaris doubles down on the use of the glass candle, confirming that Sam was being watched. But for how long? Well, only Marwyn knows. There's any amount of Sam history could have seen. And again, the mind boggles. What else will we see in the candles going forward? What might Sam specifically see? You don't know. You get the sense this is all knocked Sam for six. It's rather a lot to take in. So he kind of just lets himself get taken away by this unnamed fellow to his room because you've got to sleep somewhere. It's easier to concentrate on manners than secret conspiracies to destroy magic, so he comes out of this. My name's not Slayer, truly. I'm Sam. Sam Montani. I'm Pate, the other said. Like the pig boy. Party poppers, everybody. That prologue connection surpassing any in the books is here, loud and proud. Every ending line in these books is awesome, but this one is definitely up there in terms of what the fuck. What the hell does this mean? Yes, it confirms that Pate's identity was stolen for the purpose of getting in the Citadel, but does that mean that this is 
Jacken slash the alchemist wearing his face, or did Jacken just procure it for someone else's use? And if so, what do they want at the Citadel? We still don't know what that key does. These questions from the beginning come rushing back. Would they be trying to help the maesters or hinder them? What do they make of Daenerys and the dragons in general? What the hell is going on? And of course, this bothers us most because we've got zilch idea. Out of everything we expect in wins, I'd say this is the thing we have the least evidence for. Preview chapters give us hints about Marine and Winterfell, and there's lots of stuff to think about King's Landing and other places. We can even guess about Old Town's fate with Euron, but as for Jacquin slash Alchemist slash whatever the hell Pate is, We've got no clue, but it feels pretty important. This whole chapter is Marwyn, glass candles, the face of hate. All of this is going to have major effects on the entire world, it feels like. And poor old Sam, who has already experienced the biggest danger of all on the other side of the world, has apparently bypassed all those little pockets of safety in between and landed himself in another hotspot. Not just danger, but importance for the future of the world. Therefore, I think I can end this with not stretching to declare... Samuel Tarley is at least a top three POV for sheer importance during wins because we're not going to get information like this from anyone else. He's going to give us a lot. And that's his chapter today. And as much as I'd like to give him the same kind of attention we gave Brienne earlier in terms of a goodbye because we're not going to get him again in dance or in any wins preview chapters, well, we just don't have the time. And to be honest, I wouldn't know what to say. Who knows what's going to happen to him? As for this book, well, he started off where he wanted to be, sure, but also not too happy still thinking he's a coward, still feeling very guilty about what he'd done with John. He had a lot of rough times to go through, but the key part of it is that he focused on Gilly and Eamon and the baby and even Darian at times. And that's the strength that got him through. And he did get through. He got to Bravos. He had the courage to go and stand up to his friend. He kept swimming when he got pushed in the canal. He honoured Eamon and served his way on the cinnamon wind and even eventually got over that hump with Gilly as well. Uh, well, I don't know if his guilt is completely resolved about that, but he did do it as far as we know. And now he's here with a brand new mission that's, well, again, incredibly dangerous, but we shall have to wait and see. Now, like I said at the beginning, as much as I'd like to wrap up Feast as a whole right here and now, currently I'm looking at the recording time here on my Audacity and it's three hours, 29, three hours and a half. It's going to be a lot of work. Like I say, you might be hitting two episodes. I do have a lot to cut out because I am an R a lot. But I'm not going to include any overall thoughts on Feast here. That might come at the weekend. There'll be lots more work to do this week. So for now, I would just say pretty much what I said at the beginning. Feast is an amazing book like no other. And it is very, very much deserving of our love. For the content, for the focus of the content as much as anything else. I like looking at the people and the effects of war that way. As much as it's fun to look at Iron Thrones and uh, Conquests and everything else. I really do like what we get here. Next time it's Dance. We'll see you then. Or maybe I'll put in another episode before then. If not, come and have a look at Radio Westeros this Saturday. Come over to History of Westeros for the Feast of Crows wrap-up with Aziz and everybody else like normal. You know the score there. Hopefully, say hello if you do, and I'll say hello back. Thank you again for being with us for this book. It's been a wonderful experience. I've really enjoyed it. Going into dance, which I don't enjoy as much, but I really like it. So thank you again to patrons and everybody else. We will see you next time.
again, incredibly dangerous, but we shall have to wait and see. Now, like I said at the beginning, as much as I'd like to wrap up Feast as a whole right here and now, currently I'm looking at the recording time here on my Audacity and it's three hours, 29, three hours and a half. It's going to be a lot of work. Like I say, you might be hitting two episodes. I do have a lot to cut out because I um and ah a lot. I'm not going to include any overall thoughts on Feast here. That might come at the weekend. There'll be lots more work to do this week. So for now, I would just say pretty much what I said at the beginning. Feast is an amazing book like no other. And it is very, very much deserving of our love. For the content, for the focus of the content, as much as anything else. I like looking at the people and the effects of war that way. As much as it's fun to look at Iron Thrones and uh, Conquests and everything else, I really do like what we get here. Next time it's dance. We'll see you then. Or maybe I'll put in another episode before then. If not, come and have a look at Radio Westeros this Saturday. Come over to History of Westeros for the Feast of Crows wrap-up with Aziz and everybody else like normal. You know the score there. Hopefully, say hello if you do, and I'll say hello back. Thank you again for being with us for this book. It's been a wonderful experience. I've really enjoyed it. Going into dance, which I don't enjoy as much, but I really like Feast. So thank you again to patrons and everybody else. We will see you next time.